0: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Jonas Esposito. You all ready for this On WCPT
1: 820. Hey, how are you this Monday, January 15th? I hope you are staying warm. Uh, Ray and I woke up to a house that was 52 degrees. Why? Why is it that furnace's weight for the coldest days of the year, just to decide, you know, I'm tired of putting out warm air. I think I'm going to take a little nap. Okay. Uh, we don't know what happened. Uh, we called somebody, but by the time they got there, the furnace fixed itself. It started back up again. So that's that's a little frightening, isn't it? Uh and it didn't help that the guy who came out said that we had a really awful furnace. He said, I'm not even sure they make these anymore. They're so bad. So it's <laughs> Yes. Um gonna be gonna be an interesting winter here. We may be um buying ourselves a new furnace, but you know, it could be worse. At least it is temporarily. It's. St- I'm still wearing two shirts here, two sweaters. Um, we're almost back up to speed. <laughs> but we don't want to tax the little baby. He, he could take another nap on us. <sighs> so, happy Martin Luther King Day. Maybe you have the day off. Uh, if you um, have the day off, I hope that in some way, either today or over the weekend, you you were able to do some sort of act of service. That is what is requested of people who want to honor Martin Luther King, that they find a way to be of service to other people. If you want to go to our website, we actually have a list of ways that you can be of service, organizations you can help out. And that's what... I really love the fact, I mean, yes, we honor Martin Luther King. We go back, we look at his writing, we talk about his work and his legacy. Um, but it is it is more than that. It is a reminder that there is still work to be done. And it is a request to do some of that work, to get out and be of service. There was a big ceremony today at uh, Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church, by the time I tuned in, the the ceremony, the service, had already been going on for five hours, and it went on for hours after that. One of the people who was invited to address the congregation was Liz Cheney. Interesting choice, don't you think? And uh, during the course of her talk she got several ovations from the crowd at Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church. (sighs) I I doubt very seriously that would have happened before Trump, either of those things, the ovation or the invitation. But um, she didn't speak for a huge amount of time, five, six minutes. But she clearly was talking from the heart, and she had a message that resonated with the crowd Uh, I want to share a couple of little clips from that. One of the things she talked about today at Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church, as she was addressing the crowd there for Martin Luther King Day. She talked about, well, of course, she talked about Trump. Uh, She talked about the great lie, and she reminded people that there are still people who believe and promulgate the big lie. Listen to this.
2: My friends, as we meet this afternoon, a great lie is doing its work, poisoning the bloodstream of our democracy. A former president refuses to acknowledge that he lost, and he has convinced millions that our elections and our democracy no longer work. He threatens the foundations of our nation and everything Dr. King persevered to save. If given the chance, this former president's allies in Congress will once again ignore the rulings of our nation's courts, the outcome of our elections, and the words of our Constitution. As they they claim for themselves... The right to throw out the votes of millions of Americans and install their former leader as our president. We must not let them prevail. Who knew Liz Cheney
1: would uh, turn into a Biden surrogate? But you know what? She she does it well. She does it well. She also went on to talk, and this was a little, not so much necessarily exactly spot on for this audience, but you know you, you may have been hearing um, the reports out of Iowa where the caucuses are today, and yeah, we'll, we'll get to that later, but one of the big, again, God help me, one of the big blocks supporting Donald Trump in Iowa are evangelicals. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. Uh, And the only thing I can think of is that it's the white Christian nationalist kind of evangelical, either somebody who believes that nothing matters more than abortion or somebody who believes that the white race is superior. That's that's the only way I can explain evangelical support for Donald Trump, a man who this week, tomorrow, is going to be back in court in New York facing a woman who a judge said he sexually assaulted. There's, um, you know, E. Jean Carroll won her defamation suit against him, and there was an award, an, a monetary award. And then, remember, Donald Trump walked out of court and defamed her again? So she and her lawyer went back to court, and they said, you know what, he's still doing it. We should... Um, we should get a different amount of money. we should um, we should revise this. and they are going to be back in court tomorrow in New York and um and uh, yeah, I wouldn't have thought evangelicals would support someone who admits sleeping with a porn star, admits cheating on his all pretty much all of his wives, um, and has been in a courtroom where a judge said, "You committed sexual assault." but there, but there we are. Liz Cheney was uh, talking about some of the pastors uh, that support Donald Trump. Now, remember, Iowa, these caucuses Well, again, we'll talk more after the break. But Iowa is a state that I think is something like 89 percent white. And just because it's 89 percent white doesn't mean it's full of white supremacists. But I'd say Iowa probably has more than its share. Iowa is no longer a reflection of the Midwest. Iowa, in my opinion, is um, about as dark red as they come these days. So Liz Cheney talked about that. She talked about religious leaders who are advocating for the most ungodly of men, Donald Trump. Listen to this.
2: There are churches across our nation where ministers preach from the pulpits an adoration of this former president. There are pastors who seem to have forgotten the first commandment. <clears throat> And they, and they are openly embracing an immoral, unstable, and depraved man who threatens violence and death, who attacks the rule of law, and who says he can terminate our Constitution. All people, all people of goodwill in this nation, regardless of race, religion, political affiliation, regardless of anything else that might divide us, must stand together against this. We must draw back from the abyss. We must see each other anew, not as partisans, but as God's children. We must work, my friends, as though everything depended on us because it does. And we must pray as though everything depended upon God because it does. As Dr. King taught us, the danger is not only the vitriolic words and the violent actions of bad people, but also the appalling silence and the indifference of good people. We all must act, and we all must serve. The only requirement for service, according to Dr. King, is a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love.
1: Dr. King, she's making reference there to the statement that he had made on multiple occasions and made it different ways. But it boils down to, you know, there are people who directly oppose him and, uh, you know, fight him at every turn. But he uh, but he said repeatedly that those weren't the people that bothered him the most. The people who bothered him the most. Were People who purported to support the work of Dr. King, and yet when push came to shove, they were nowhere to be found. That was, that was what bothered Dr. King the most, that whole idea of evil flourishes when good people sit by and do nothing. We are going to take a break. Yes, yes, it's very cold in Iowa, and they're caucusing. And uh, it is meaningless, but we will talk about it when we come right back after this.
0: WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive. WCPT 820.
1: Yes, there are caucuses in Indiana, blah, blah, blah. Trump is 20 points ahead of Nikki Haley. Um if you know, there might be some slight interest in whether Nikki Haley or DeSantis comes out on top, but really, really, not that much. Neither of the uh, number two and number three folks are really viable as a vice presidential candidate because they don't have the kind of loyalty Trump wants. And uh, I, Charlie Sykes, writing in the bulwark this morning, said we're going to see a lot of Board pundits, a lot of people trying to um, say interesting and provocative things about the Iowa caucuses uh, on cable television tonight. <laughs> in other words, trying to make a non-event an event. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. we got Bobby calling in from Indiana. Hello, Bobby. How are you today?
3: Well, better today. I apologize for having to drop out on you last Friday. That's okay. I was a little worried that's about really you,
1: but um, I figured man. something came up. Bobby was yeah, on the phone well, lines, we, and then he had to go.
3: And I hope you get your uh, heating problem straightened out.
1: Oh, well, you know, we're in the yeah, 60s now. Nice. We're It's balmy here now. Hey! Oh, <laughs> boy, you're, in a, you're getting know. up in the world there. You know, oil, it takes a furnace a long time to heat up a really oh. cold house.
3: Yeah, and I live Even in a house. Even the dogs were snuggling together this morning. Yeah, yeah, I've been there, done that.
4: Yeah.
3: Um, well, last week, I, uh, one of the th- and I've heard this so many times um, mm-hmm. Trump. They they they, they want to put Trump the lump in there, lump him in, um, with being a quote unquote strong man dictator or author authorita- oh <laughs> authoritarian, authoritarian dictator. Yeah, authoritarian dictator. The one thing in there that I totally disagree with is in no way. A strong man. Yeah, his strength only comes through his money that he allegedly has and, and his and cruelty, legal, cruelty and le- legal wranglings. The mm-hmm. strength. Yeah,
1: I'll bury always, you in the lawyers. That's done, how I'll get. I'll break you down.
3: Yeah, it, but it's but no matter how it is, it's true. Someone else doing the fighting for him.
4: Mm Mm-hmm.
3: Never, and as far as I can tell, going back through history, it never has been, you know, know, doing the fighting. He's always had someone else to do the dirty work, no matter what it is. Yep. Yeah, he doesn't
1: get his hands dirty. And he always part of the reason why I think it has been so difficult to pursue him legally is because he always has other people like Michael Cohen, you know, Michael Cohen did the actual dirty work and then Donald Trump can go and say, oh, I had no idea what he was doing. I didn't tell him to do it.
3: You know, it's a funny thing. Uh, He supposedly had the, uh, uh, Mr. Lovely's book by his bed, Hitler's Mein Kampf, you know, and, and and he's talked about his Germanic heritage and and you know he 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 kind of likes that German militarism, but Hitler was a front line soldier in World War One. Can you imagine Trump in a front line anywhere?
1: Oh, you know he's got those bone spurs, Bobby. Uh, every time yeah, anybody talks right. about you know, he, it's not that he didn't want to serve. He had those bone spurs that kept him out of the service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Gee, if Hitler would have thought of that, maybe we'd
1: all be better off. Yeah, and, and people don't remember this because it's never gotten a lot of publicity, but I can't remember which one of his sons it was, whether it was Don or Eric, um, but one of them and at one point talked about going into the military and Donald Trump told him yeah. that if he did that, he would disown him.
3: Yes, yes, that is very true. And uh, so uh, but I, I I wish we could get off of this. Uh, um, strong man when talking about yeah. him. And, and no. by the way, I still wish. Because what we need to do is give him the problem I have now, but ratchet it up more, high blood pressure, and start calling him Dopey Donnie. <laughs> because they said that in the White House, people would say something. He said, well, that's, we'll tell him, well, that's a dopey Say, And he would hit the ceiling so hard, he'd knock the plaster off. So, uh, yeah. Whew. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, you have a good uh, good day and stay warm. However, you do it.
1: Thanks, Bobby. You too. Appreciate the call. Uh, let's go back to the phone line. Steve's calling in today. Hey, Steve, how are you?
5: Yes, uh, I wanted to make a couple of points, and and I, I agree with you. I Iowa's dynamics are, are different in all sorts of ways, not just the, the fact that it's a caucus rather than a primary, uh, and. Obviously, you know, we're talking about something that's a foregone far conclusion, a foregone conclusion with regard to the results here. But, uh, you know, the, the press needs something to talk about. So then it will become <laughs> the story of one of two things. okay, the, the margin of victory was even greater, OK, than we anticipated for Trump. So let's talk about that. Or it wasn't as great. So therefore, Nikki Haley possibly has a chance and we have something to talk about going into yeah. New Hampshire and Super Tuesday. Because, you know, if you have a contest, you know, it's like a like a sporting event. If, if things are yep. close, tune in. If you've got a blowout, people are just like, OK, let's move on to the Super Bowl. You no, know, I mean, <laughs> this game is done. And, yeah. and it, that does no good because, you know, I mean, with, with all due respect to a lot of news entities, you know, keep in mind they're corporations. Uh, bottom line matters. And they, they sell advertising based on viewership. People tune in to good contests. people don't tune in where there's no contest, and that means advertisers don't pay as much so yeah you know they have to they have to gin it up and turn it into something. There are a hundred thousand more uh Republicans in Iowa than there were last time around uh, you know it, the, you, people have to understand that a lot of these states out west and some in the south have become these sort of destinations, these enclaves of conservatism, people who have moved out of California or
1: Yep, we've got that that, uh, Steve dropout. Um, You know, in just a few minutes, we're going to be joined by uh, Ty Rushing, who's the chief correspondent for the Iowa Starting Line. It is a courier newsroom uh, outlet, and we are going to be talking to him. I actually hadn't heard that statistic that Steve just shared with us, that there's 100,000 more Republicans in Iowa than, than last time there was a presidential election. Steve, where did you get that figure? Hello Yeah Steve, I, I was Hello? saying um, I hadn't heard that before that there were a hundred thousand more Republicans in Iowa than uh, there were the last time around. where Where did you read that? Where did you get that figure?
5: Uh, that was that was from uh, the American Political Science Association uh, hmm. publica- uh, publication. Was, I was at the conference this past uh, fall. And I remember hearing it uh, at, at wow. a panel discussion. So, um, I, yeah, well, you know,
1: you know, yeah, one of my friends who's a former yeah. One of my friends who's a former journalist said one thing that was driving her crazy was all of these like um, reporters out of D.C. who are talking like somehow Iowa is represented representative of the Midwest and you know Midwest values and 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 Iowa has become. I would say one of the most radical states in the Midwest, hardly representative.
5: Exactly. That's part and parcel of the problem. We have two states, Iowa and New Hampshire. And if you don't do well there, whether it was Democrats or Republicans traditionally, I mean, you you had to drop out because money follows, you know, success. And these states are not representative in any way, shape or form of this country. There's not a major metropolitan area. The demographics in terms of race, religion, ethnicity... uh,
1: Oh, sorry. I I was coughing, so I shut my mic off. So between Steve dropping out and me shutting my mic off, Andy, were you prepared to just finish this whole segment? <coughs> sorry. I got a little, little tiny, little tiny, itty bitty baby cold. Um So, yeah, we are going to take a break. We are going to be going to Iowa when we come right back after this. Iowa Starting Line is a courier newsroom publication. They are uh, a publication that brings people neighborhood news, but also brings people political news that affects them in their area. And uh, so Iowa Starting Line is all about Iowa. And we're going to be talking to the chief correspondent, Ty Rushing, when we come right back after this.
0: Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: And we're joined by Ty Rushing, chief correspondent, Iowa starting line. Okay, Ty, you might have just heard news at the top of the hour. It is three above here. Uh, What's the weather like where you are?
6: Oh well, let's see. Right now it is net. Oh oh, look at that. We got a heat wave. It's zero degrees, but it feels like negative (laughs) twenty.
4: Oh,
1: zero degrees. Oh my goodness oh, yeah. gracious!
6: And when the caucus starts at tonight, it is going to be negative five.
1: Oh, oh man! You know, I was, I was reading somewhere somebody was speculating, and I, I, would, I don't know why this is that the, um, that the bad weather might help uh, Trump and it might help DeSantis, but it would hurt Nikki Haley because she doesn't have the. Uh, the same ground organization to get people to the caucuses, regardless of whether or not they're freezing to death. Um, Is that your perception, too?
6: I mean, that is a great point, because, uh, you know, Trump and DeSantis have both like, you know, strong ground game here. I mean, uh, the super PAC back in DeSantis has really, really been working with the on the ground volunteers. So that could be a detriment to Nikki Haley. But, you know, everyone I've talked to, they still think that the weather won't uh, affect the turnout as much as people are speculating, especially because the roads won't be as bad as they've been over the last few days because crews have had enough time to clear the roads and, like, we haven't had additional snowfalls over the weekend.
4: Hmm.
1: Interesting. I know that um, last time around, uh, Trump from didn't have the same kind of um, organization that he has this time around. What do you why do you think that is? Because do you think he this time around, he thinks he needs that kind of an organization or is he just um, a better organized politician this time around?
3: Frankly, he's just
6: running a better campaign this time than he's done either other time. Uh, you know, he knows that he's got to have an on the ground organization. And then he's been really emphasizing the people that need to go out and caucus. They need to go out and caucus. You can't just like my post. You can't just come to the Riley's. You gotta go out and call because if you actually want to see me return to the White House, and mm-hmm. so like he's been he's been on message uh, surprisingly about that.
1: So, um, where have you been traveling the last few days, and who have you been talking with?
6: So, last few days I actually just did remote because I was stuck in my complex because they had the plot. They just. They basically weren't able to plow me out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yesterday was the first time I was able to get out and about. Uh, but I let's see. I watched uh, I watched stage Trump Friday yesterday. Watched another one on Saturday, and then I think I watched one on Friday as well. And then uh, my colleagues have been trying to get to the Santos, Ramaswamy, and Nikki Haley events too. So we've just kind of been like uh, all over the place trying to get to where we can go, uh, whether you know, whether it's I.
1: Tell me about the Trump rallies you were at. What was your impression?
6: Well, Trump's uh, the Trump rallies. I mean, these people are fired up, like, and that's why that's one of the reasons I don't think weather's going to be that much of a deterrent for so many people because Trump supporters they like, they love Trump, and you know I was at a Trump rally on January sixth, and he said his people would walk across glass to support him, and I one hundred percent believe that. And then last night he said. You know, it doesn't matter if you're six of the dog, go out and caucus and you could pass away after. He basically <laughs> said, hey, then vote for me and die as long as you vote for me. And people uh, cheered.
4: Oh,
1: I'm sorry. <laughs> OK. Yeah. I find that a little surprising. Yeah. I mean, you go cool to another Trump
6: rally, you, you don't find it surprising.
1: Yeah, really?
6: Uh, yeah.
4: Yeah. S-
1: do you think. If you had to describe what it is about him that they like, and I know, you know, maybe it, maybe it's not monolithic, but what would be your sense of why those people are there and why they are so excited about him?
6: That's a great question. I mean, it's all over the place. You know, you got some people who will tell you they love him because he's strong on the border. There's others who believe he's, like, the best with the economy, and... That his business expertise will carry over and you know help americans do better and you know put less of a strain on the pocketbook but there's also just the cult of personality around him himself i mean you know um, you, you always he, he's got constant exposure you always see his face everywhere and then it's like sometimes you know sometimes a lot of people like if you piss off the libs, <laughs> that's enough that's enough of reason to like you and so it's just the the reason people like him are just all over the place so nuanced i mean but the immigration stuff, I think, is just one of the really, really uh, big ones because, you know, he started to build that wall and then every other candidate has adopted that phrase. I mean, the Santa tried to use it, but he, flip it and he flips it and says, I will actually build a wall instead of, you know, just build it. Mm-hmm. And so, hey, just like economy and the U.S. southern border are the two things that like every candidate I've seen uh, this cycle use that get like just the biggest reaction out of the crowd.
1: Is it true that um, there's big evangelical support in Iowa for Trump?
4: Oh yeah.
6: Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> they like him too. Uh, and you know, you saw Mike Pence and Tim Scott both trying to break through with that crowd. And you know, those guys those guys are legit evangelicals. I mean, you saw uh, Bob Vanderplas, the you know probably one of Iowa's top political evangelical leaders. Uh, endorse DeSantis and try to sway you know, his name behind him and it, it hasn't been at Trump I mean, the endorsements this cycle have just not been as powerful as they have been in the past because Trump Trump breaks all the rules when it comes to the Iowa caucus, you know, he doesn't have to do as many events as everyone else he doesn't have to do as much retail politics and uh, he's just there
1: I understand the um, religious background of Mike Pence and, to some extent, Tim Scott. Donald Trump doesn't have any kind of religious background. By his own admission, he breaks commandments left and right. Can you give me some insight into the evangelical support of him? I mean, does it come down to racism? That, you know, that he that they feel that he's going to bring about some sort of white Christian nationalist world. I'm really puzzled by this, Ty.
6: Well, I mean, obviously race is a factor in this as well. And then you also have to remember this. Republicans have been promising to overturn Roe since, you know, its inception. And who actually got it done? And so that's going to get you a lot of credit with that crowd right there.
1: Iowa used to be, if not blue, it was least purpley, and it seems to be getting redder by the minute. Do you have any feel for why that's happening?
3: Yeah, I mean, Iowa
6: is kind of wild, because like you said, I wouldn't even argue a few years ago we were still purple. But just like, well, the Iowa Republican Party has really done a great job of building up its infrastructure and you know uh, their politicians stay on message in public. You don't really see much uh, infighting between Iowa Republicans spill out into the public sphere. Whereas, like Iowa Democrats have no problems tearing each other, you know, like knocking each other down in public at all. And so you see a lot more Democrat infighting uh, with you know like publicly, like coming out there and being seen by the public. And also, like you know, Rita Hart, the new Democratic chair, is working on like doing more outreach to all 99 counties. But so many people in rural Iowa feel like they've been abandoned by the Democratic Party, and even if they get good candidates who are trying to run for like local office there or state house or the Iowa Senate, a lot of those folks don't cut through because their opponent just you know throws a flyer out there with them and Nancy Pelosi and AOC and says, look, they want to bring the no- the Green New Deal to Iowa, and whether or not it's true doesn't matter. They see you associated with those two figures, and they hear the National Democratic message, message and that's that's all you are to them. Like. So, Iowa Democrats have to do a lot better about messaging and getting their message to actually break through. But it's kind of hard because, all right, in rural Iowa, if you listen to AM radio, that's going to be all conservative. You know, you mm-hmm. go to a gas station, you go to anywhere where there's a TV. Guess what's on TV? Fox News, or you know, mm-hmm. in some cases, even Newsmax. So, like, you know, your, your your viewpoints are being drowned out. Like, you know, you don't hear a lot more of what the other side is talking about. You just hear about all these bad things about Democrats from the national media or from, like, whatever media sources they're listening to, and that just becomes a conversation.
1: I, I agree with you, Ty, and I know that you and the uh, Courier Newsroom, Iowa starting line that you work for, are trying to make a dent into that. I mean, I m- live in a blue area, but, you know, here at CPT, we are always trying to make a dent in that. But it, it seems like... Deep pocketed Democrats, for the most part, have never understood the power of the media. And, you know, as you well know, and I well know, Republicans have been investing in local media. Forget about even Fox News, which is its own powerhouse, but local radio stations and, um, networks. And, and they're reaping the benefits of that, I think. And it really makes me sad that it seems like it has taken our side a long time to wake up to that. Because, you know, it's not the kind of thing you do overnight. It's not the kind of thing that you can pull together in eight weeks to win an election. It takes investing and nurturing and building over a period of years. It just seems, Ty, that Republicans... Maybe it's because they've always viewed themselves as a minority, but they're much more willing to play the long game. It feels to me like Democrats, we want it now. We want to spend some money. We want to see some results right here, right now. What do you think?
6: No, you're spot on. I mean, Republicans play the long game and, you know, they're really, really good at it. I mean, like you said, they've been building up this infrastructure of conservative media for decades, decades. Like they... They saw, they read the tea leaves and they went about making change that way. And like, boom, you're constantly seeing your people in your day with their information. And now you're seeing these attacks that are ramp, being ramped up on public education because, you know, <laughs> if you control the, you know, like they're trying to get their people to, you know, align with their point of view from an earlier and earlier age. And, you know, it, it's so weird just seeing people like accuse public schools of being indoctrination factors and things like that because, you know, they teach historical
7: facts. It, it, it's, it's scary.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm speaking with Ty Rushing, who's the chief correspondent at the Iowa Starting Line. We are going to take a break and we are going to continue our discussion with Ty right after this.
0: This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: Joining me is Ty Rushing, who is the chief correspondent for the Iowa Starting Line. It is the Iowa Caucus Day. Um, It's a very important day in Iowa. Um, Before I move on to other topics, though, uh, for a second, Ty, explain to my audience what is happening right now in Iowa and what will happen tonight.
6: Okay, so right now you have candidates going all over the state. These are GOP presidential candidates going all over the state to make their last-minute pitches to potential caucus goers. Uh, and so you have them, um, like, have some announced and pre-planned events, and then you just got random pop-ups. I mean, I think there were two candidates who went to the Drake Diner in Des Moines here this morning. So you're just basically trying to make those last-minute appeals or trying to, like, spur up some last-minute support. So mm-hmm. at 7 p.m., uh, you, you should get there earlier. Thousands of Iowans will go to 1,600 precinct locations across the state to caucus. And and inside of the caucus itself, this is for the GOP caucus. Inside of the caucus, there are surrogates who are going to speak on behalf of each candidate. Then everyone who who was inside of that room will receive a blank piece of paper, and then they will write down their presidential preference, and those will be tallied up. And that's how we will find out who wins the Iowa GOP caucus.
1: And when do you think we'll have those results tonight?
6: Well, according, uh, yeah, according, So according to the Iowa uh, Republican Party, we should have results tonight.
1: Like, like, like nine o'clock or ten o'clock or seven o'clock or midnight.
6: I think it'll be. Let's see, I, actually, I don't even want to speculate on time, but it will be tonight sometime. Uh, it won't be a situation like with the Iowa Democrats in 2020 because this process is much simpler. It's a straight up, just straight up count. There's no funky map involved. There's no app. It's just paper and pencil and names.
1: Hmm. No machines. No. Well, I think um...
6: so. And there's a, and, uh, and and each and each candidate uh, can have someone in the room watching as they tabulate the. Uh, like, you know, if they count
1: the names up. You know, um, I heard that Vivek Ramaswamy was there, but a f- be- last week, Asa, Hutching, Asa Hutchinson was trying to get out the word uh, that he still exists, he still considers himself a candidate, and I thought he was going to be in Iowa. Have you seen him anywhere? Oh, no, he's here. He's there?
7: Oh, yeah, he's here. Uh,
6: let's see, he's going to have an event at Gusto Pizza in Des Moines tonight, and then I think it was either yesterday or the day before he went bowling with campaign volunteers. Hmm. Hmm. So Asa's
3: still here. He's hanging around. Oh, and he was one of the
6: candidates who went to the Drake Diner this morning as well.
1: So it's Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump, Asa Hutchinson, Vivek Ramaswamy. Anybody else going to be part of this?
6: Uh, Ryan Binkley. Who? He's also
4: here. (laughs) i missed him Uh, when did he
1: when uh, no i've been keeping track of this i missed i missed (laughs) his whole candidacy
6: yep yep he is here as well so he is a texas businessman and pastor
1: huh okay all right what does it mean um let's say as we expect donald trump is going to be the big winner let's say You know, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are tied for second. What, if anything, does that mean, Ty?
6: Well, so historically, the winner of the caucus has not gone on to become president.
4: Uh, (laughs) Oh, good. Good news.
6: (laughs) You know, there's, of course, there's a few success stories. So in 2000, uh, George W. Bush was kind of the he, he won the Republican caucus here in Iowa, and then he, of course, went on to become the nominee and won the presidential election. And for Democrats, their huge, you know, their big success story is Barack Obama. Mm
4: -hmm. Like, he
6: is the success story. So for Trump, Trump wants this because, okay, you know, obviously he won in 2020, but, you know, that was, you know, it was already incumbent, so that didn't really matter. Ed Cruz won in 2016. Trump wants this 2024 caucus victory. He wants it that. And what's going to be interesting is to see uh, if DeSantis or Haley comes out at number two, because that's going to figure, that's going to kind of decide, you know, okay, what happens with the rest of this primary? Because uh, DeSantis put all of his ships in, uh, in here on Iowa, and yet, you know, he's not getting much it, while Nikki Haley has been climbing up the polls, And she's also doing performing way better in New Hampshire than she is here. So if she gets a second-place finish here, pulls off New Hampshire, you know, she may make the primary a little bit more competitive for a while.
1: Do you think that she has an ice cubes chance in hell of uh, getting the nomination away from Donald Trump?
6: I would be shocked. I, I'm not a gambling man, but um, I, I'd put the money on Trump in Vegas.
1: <laughs> I don't think you'd get great odds because, I, you know, I, I think that's <laughs> such a that's such a sure thing. Your, your odds would probably be zero zero. So just. Ty, keep that money Keep that money in your pocket. Uh, let's talk about uh, Governor Kim Reynolds and what is going on on, on that front. There's some stuff going on in your state legislature and something about a secret Twitter account. What can you tell us about that?
8: Okay,
6: so with the secret Twitter account, the New York Times ended up breaking the story, uh, I believe it was late last week. And that sucks for me because I was actually working on that story in the background in between a million other things. And I just kind of put it on the back burner because our state legislature le- legislature started up. So I never got a chance to, you know, actually finish that story. <laughs> but yeah, the New York times, what was interesting about that piece though, is they never, they never just, they never got actual confirmation. They just kind of said it, which, and here's the thing, people have been speculating about this account. Like people behind the scenes have been speculating about this particular account for months. Uh, and, yeah, my boss was actually just like he—he he was constantly monitoring it and you know recording screenshots of the various tweets that it liked. And a lot of the times, you know, the Ken Reynolds account, like the personal one, uh, she didn't tweet much from it. It was like 14 tweets, something like that, or 52. It was a very small number. And a lot of the times, it was kind of very Facebook grandma like, "Happy birthday!" and "Go Hawkeyes!" and I was pl- i was <laughs> glad to be in Clayton County. <laughs> And so it was just like, it seemed too obvious for it to be her account, but, uh, you had people, you know, political insiders kind of whispering about it. And what made me kind of like, you know, go, Oh, this might really be her account was that it had a lot of notable Iowa politicos following the account and they were mutuals and including this included some people who Reynolds nominated to the position and various Iowa, uh, Republicans in elected office. And a lot of people from Ron DeSantis and the Never Back Down communications team follow this account as well.
1: Okay, I understand there have been from time to time public officials who created a secret Twitter account because they wanted to post what like what they really thought about things. And um, this doesn't is this is this that it sounds kind of too lame for that.
6: Oh, no, no, no. Oh, There were some fights there, too. (laughs) Don't get me wrong there. So uh, it was a lot The likes. The likes on that account had a lot of anti-Trump stuff. And oh. if you recall, Trump and Reynolds have been beefing publicly since the summer when he started attacking her because of her relationship with DeSantis. And this is well before she officially endorsed him. So she's been liking a lot of anti-Trump tweets and retweeted a few. So Why like, couldn't
1: she do <laughs> she's that? done that. Why couldn't she do that officially? I mean, she endorsed Ron. Wasn't it Ron DeSantis? Yeah. And so she obviously doesn't like Trump. So why hide the fact?
6: I will never understand that either. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, why not just, you know, do it with your chest? Hmm. But there was a lot of anti-Trump in those lights.
1: Huh interesting politics is always it's it there's always things about it that just surprise me you know because it's you know i uh, i interview a lot of political science professors and they do all this research and everything but man oh man people are so human and those human foibles just always create such a a different layer <laughs> of 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 what is interesting in politics Man, oh man! So if what if how will it affect Kim Reynolds if DeSantis comes out number three?
6: That's a good question. I'm actually going. That's actually a story I'm going to be working on. I'm trying to get in touch with a number of political scientists based uh, here in the state to get their thoughts on what it means that she used her immense political cloud on this guy and mm. he went nowhere. Does this mean mm-hmm. the endorsements are dead? How does this damage her? How does this affect her? because, you know, she she put it all on the line there to go all in on DeSantis.
1: Well, you know what and I thought?
6: Like, what does that tell, do with her?
1: Tell me if this, if, if this felt like this to you. It, you know, it felt like by the time she endorsed DeSantis, he was already on a downward trend. You know, I mean, this guy broke big. You know, there was big money behind him. And then things seemed to get worse and worse and worse. And then it seemed to me almost like, she had been asked to help try to get him back on track or try to get him a boost that would, that would put him back where he had been? Because it seemed to me he was already, I don't know, fading? What do you think about that?
4: No, you're,
6: you're spot on. I mean, she should have did it a lot sooner. You know, if you're going to do it, do it a lot sooner because at first she said that she was going to remain neutral and neococcuses. And she did, for the most part, I mean, she appeared at events with just about all of these candidates uh, as campaign, except for Trump. And that's kind of what led to their big falling out. She appeared at events with all of these various candidates. Uh, She did what she called fair side chats at the Iowa State Fair, where she did one-on-one interviews with the entire field, with the exception of Trump. So, you know, she stayed out of it for as long as she could. And I guess, you know, she saw her guy uh, just falling, and she figured maybe Okay, I'm Kim Reynolds. I'm very, very popular with Republicans here in Iowa. If I step in and put my name next to your name, that's going to help you out a lot. And the problem with that is that Donald Trump's name is bigger than both their
4: names. Mm-hmm. Of the Republicans.
1: Wow. So um, I've I've got I've got to tell you, Ty. I'm probably just going to go to bed early tonight. I uh, I don't think this is. Um, You know, I guess you could say that maybe who's going to get the number two spot is a bit of a cliffhanger. I I just don't think I've got it in me, though, to um, lose valuable hours of sleep to see whether or not Nikki Haley will come out on top of Ron DeSantis. And, Ty, also a question of how it works. Once the caucus results become public, is this like a regular election? Would you expect, let's say Nikki Haley comes in number two? Uh, when that result is announced, is she going to be making like a speech somewhere like, oh, thank you, Iowa. I always knew I could count on you. And then balloons and confetti. Are we going to get anything like that?
6: Oh, yeah. Folks have their places picked out already. I mean, uh, let's see. I think even Asa Hutchinson has a, a meet and greet. Uh, today. Oh, poor Asa. <laughs> yeah, Ryan Brinkley. OK, this is how confident Ryan Brinkley is. Yeah. Uh, he, his event is going to be at a downtown Des Moines hotel, and it's called a campaign celebration. What they're going to be <laughs> celebrating, I have no idea, but that's what we're calling it. Uh, <laughs> the Sanders is going to have his podcast event, so yeah, no, no, folks have their hotels. They have their banquet rooms booked. Uh, wow. And they're, yeah.
1: Well, if you're going to be uh, at uh, Trump headquarters or wherever you're going to be tonight, uh, I hope there's... A nice buffet and, you know, in a perfect world, an open bar. So you can at least have some fun. Well,
6: unfortunately for me, you know, I I got stories to write and stories to edit and videos to look at. So I got to be as sober as a nun uh, tonight.
1: Well, then you know what? I will have a cocktail for you, Ty, and I will toast your honor.
6: Please do. I mean, I'm going to be freezing my butt off to get these results out to people.
1: Well, we're going to be having a good time reading Ty Rushing's writing tomorrow. Uh, Chief Correspondent, Iowa Starting Line, I know this is an insane day. And, Ty, I really appreciate you taking the time out of a crazy day to talk to me and my listeners.
6: Don't for you. I'll do it any even on the craziest of days.
1: Okay. Ty Rushing is going to be our regular correspondent on a monthly basis here on CPT Uh, We will be talking to him again sooner rather than later. Uh, Take care, my friend. We are going to take a break for news, and we're going to be back with more after this.
0: Joan Esposito. Live.
1: Celebrating our power to bring about change. Local. Everybody has to work together. And progressive. I think you get the idea. On
0: WCPT 820.
1: I'd like to welcome back Professor Michael Kelly teaches law at Creighton University in Omaha. We have talked to Professor Kelly about a number of things. Um He was the one we had the discussion with about the move to create a right to be forgotten on the Internet. We have talked about Ukraine. We have talked about Vladimir Putin. Uh, he has um, been part of a summer law program in Nuremberg, Germany focused on international criminal law. And it is such a pleasure to have him back. Michael, thank you so much for being here.
9: Good to be with you again.
1: Now, my understanding is that you fairly recently made a trip to Ukraine. Could you tell us about that?
9: I did. I did. Um, every December 10th is Human Rights Day. And that marks the birthday of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And this past year, um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights turned 75 years old. Wow. Uh, Can you believe that? And so the American Society of International Law arranged for 75 American attorneys to go meet 75 Ukrainian attorneys in Ukraine on Human Rights Day to symbolically together stand up for the rule of law against Russia. Uh, and so that's that's what we did. Um, and it was really a powerful trip. It was a hard trip. Um, it was a little bit dicey trip. There were air raid sirens. There were MiG-31s. But everybody got there and back safely. And one of the reasons that we decided to go was not only the symbolism, but to start working a bit on legal process to try to secure those frozen Russian assets in Western capitals and get that money flowing back to Ukraine. Because I tell you what, Congress isn't doing much right now.
1: I've been reading about people who have uh, been suggesting that frozen Russian assets should be liquidated and that money should be passed along to Ukraine. But my understanding was that the that that was of questionable legality. Could you talk about that a little bit and explain it more?
9: Yeah, so there's two buckets. Uh, The first bucket is the the frozen Russian assets that belong to the Russian central bank. And those are sovereign assets. So you're right. That's that's widely considered to be illegal to seize those because of sovereign immunity. But the second bucket uh, is the frozen assets of Russian corporations and the oligarchs, and so you've heard about the yacht seizures, uh, but there's also bank account seizures (laughs) and sanctions, Um, and so one way to get at those assets uh, is to bring a claim in Ukraine, uh, and one of the things I was proposing uh, was the possibility of prosecuting a Russian corporation in Ukraine. If you can show that that Russian corporation supported a Russian unit that committed a war crime. So you can think of, you know, several Russian companies that lent aid and support to, let's say the Wagner group. Um, And you can prove that the Wagner group was associated with the, the war crime and the massacre in Bukha, which it was, then you can make that chain of links back to that company, prove it in court, and then take that judgment to London or New York or Paris, or Berlin, or Tokyo, or wherever those those corporate assets are frozen, and present that judgment to that foreign court and ask them to attach those assets uh, and get that money back to Ukraine. Um, what does that
1: mean, attach those assets?
9: To the judgment, to satisfy the judgment. So if that company's found guilty, then the court will you know attach a financial award to it. And you have to go shopping to find out where you can find that money. <laughs> is it located, you know, in Tokyo or is it located in San Francisco? Um, and you knock on the courthouse door and ask the judge to attach that award. This is, this is what we do with arbitration awards. You go out and you arbitrate your case, you know, two companies, and then you bring your arbitration award back to, you know, the jurisdiction where the money's located and ask the court to, to combine those.
1: So, if there's a Russian company that say provided Wagner group with i don't know you know um meals like you know m r e sure. rations or something like that, sure. and you can show that link and that support and then you can show that the Wagner group committed atrocities, therefore uh the company is responsible, and maybe yep. the country the the company makes those bars in in uh in japan somewhere so that's where they have this big bank account that's what you're talking about yeah. so you yeah. you establish this this chain of events and then you go to japan and you say you have frozen you know five million dollars for this company and we can show you where that company is guilty of atrocities therefore you you should give us that money would
9: or yeah. the money gets transferred yeah,
1: to the government. Um, what's the next step? There? Yeah,
9: exactly, exactly. Because they've already frozen the assets because of sanctions. So now that they're froze frozen, you need to seize them and convert that that freeze into a seize uh, so that you can get the money back. And really, Joan, the the interesting thing is, um, and not to get too in the weeds on criminal law with you, but. Um, you don't have to show to prosecute a company. You don't have to show intent. If they're aiding and abetting all you, or complicity, all you have to show is knowledge. So they knew, you know, that X was committing war crimes and supported them anyway. And you can show that through financial transactions or, you know, uh, board meeting minutes. Even even Vladimir Putin's um, seizure of Ukrainian children, uh, If you know, if there's a Russian... Uh, transportation organization, you know, the train company or shuttles that moved those kids who had been abducted from Ukraine to another site, you know, and offloaded them, they're participating in a crime. And, you know, that transportation company can be sued. Um, So, you know, it's a pathway that hasn't really been explored yet. But that was one of the things we were exploring over there. And one of the reasons that uh Ukraine is very interested in these kinds of pathways is because they are trying so hard to establish themselves as a rule of law nation. Um, so after after the collapse of the Soviet Union, to take you back <laughs> mm-hmm. about 25 years, if you remember, 1991. Gorb- Gorbachev. Yeah yes exactly mm-hmm. you get you get an A in history. Oh, I'm um, old,
1: Michael. you know, I lived through all this stuff.
9: <laughs> well, then you remember when, yes. when the Soviet Union collapsed <laughs> and
1: at my age, uh, remembering I should get a gold star for that
9: <laughs> you do you get three <laughs> uh, and and so fifteen new countries emerged, right out of the Soviet Union, and out of those three, i mean out of those out of those fifteen, only three. Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia really kind of established themselves as sustainable democracies. Hmm. Uh, the rest didn't. And why is that? Because they were rule of law societies and had been, you know, before they were absorbed into the Soviet Empire. The others, Kazakhstan, uh, Belarus, no, they, they did not emerge as democracies. Russia itself was a democracy for about a weekend, right, under Yeltsin. Uh, But Russia was not a rule of law society, and so it couldn't sustain democracy. Ukraine has really kind of bucked that trend. They have, you know, for the past 25 years with fits and starts, tried to sustain themselves as a democracy, but you have to have the rule of law to get it to work, and that's what they've been working on. You know, they they inherited a lot of the old Soviet corruption, in their military system, their banking system, uh, their financial system, their political system, and they've been trying to root out this corruption, you know, with special courts and, and that kind of thing, um, because they need to they need to demonstrate that they're a rule of law country uh, if they're going to hold this alliance together in the West, because we are all rule of law democracies, and and you know that's who we want to support uh, in this fight against authoritarianism.
1: You said that this was one of the ideas you put forth. Was it well-received? Is anybody going to be acting on it, or is Ukraine already moving in this direction?
9: Yeah, it was well-received. In fact, on February 1st, I'm, I'm offering a webinar in Kiev remotely. <laughs> no, I'm not going, <laughs> but uh, for the Ukrainian Arbitration Association on, on how to do these things. Uh, and I'll have a white paper out later this month um, that lays out this pathway. But there's, you know, there's other um, there's other legal avenues that Ukraine is trying to hold Russia accountable for. Uh, in the last two years, um, the Zelensky government has really taken this rule of law approach to litigating against Russia internationally. And so they've opened up cases. Uh, against Russia at the International Court of Justice, at the European Court of Human Rights, the Permanent Court of Arbitration, the Law of the Sea Tribunal, because this is what you do if you're a democracy, right? You go to court mm-hmm. and you make your case and, and Russia doesn't show up. You know, there's nine empty chairs on the other side because authoritarian states don't show up. Uh, they don't believe in the rule of law they they're against it um and so this is another way that you know ukraine has really been trying to establish itself
1: now i understand that uh international criminal charges are brought in the hague this the kind of thing you're talking about is that considered more of a civil proceeding and if so what court system would be the one to say, "Oh, yeah, this is a great idea. We're doing this."
9: Yeah, it, it, you're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, another gold star for you. Uh, maybe you should get your <laughs> law degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this is uh, this is a civil proceeding against Russia, and the reason is because Russia, in a perverse way, uh, accused Ukraine of committing genocide against. Russian-speaking people living in Ukraine in order to, to use that as an excuse to invade. Because under, under the old 1948 Genocide Treaty, um, you, you as a country have two duties. You have a duty to punish genocide when it happens, but you also have a duty to prevent genocide. And so Russia said, oh, you know, Ukraine's committing genocide against Russian-speakers in Ukraine. We have a duty, an obligation to prevent genocide. That means... We have to rush in there with our military and protect these people. Uh, and, mm. and then, uh, so Ukraine went to court and said, no, wait a minute. Russia's using this as an excuse to invade us. This is not happening. Uh, and, you know, we, uh, we're going to defend our reputation and defend ourselves, you know, against the, these allegations um and this is this is a problem i mean um countries will hijack the term
4: genocide right yeah you know Uh,
1: um we michael we need to take a break and i was going to ask you to define that because all of a sudden everybody that seems to be a word that everybody's throwing around and Mm -hmm. i i i would like you to explain to us what it what it Means to people like you who have a a legal background as opposed to somebody like me who just reads it in the paper. I'm talking to Professor Michael Kelly. Uh, He's a professor of law at Creighton University in Omaha. We are going to be right back after this.
0: Alexa, play WCPT.
1: WCPT from TuneIn.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820.
1: And I'm joined by Michael Kelly who's a professor of law at Creighton University in Omaha. We have been talking. uh, He's he does a lot of work. He's been doing a lot of work with uh, with Ukraine. And we were stumbling across the word genocide. Um, You know, Putin accused Ukraine of genocide to justify an invasion. Recently, um, South Africa was accusing Israel of genocide. What? What is the legal understanding, the legal definition of that word?
9: So um, genocide comes from, well, the term was coined uh, back in 1944 by a, a Jewish-Polish jurist named Raphael Lemkin. Uh, and he took the... Uh, the Greek term genos and the Latin term side and combine them to create this concept, genocide, wiping out an entire people. It's related to, you know, the previous legal terms, homicide, you Mm -hmm. know, killing a person, regicide, killing a king, patricide, killing a father. So this is a logical extension of that, but it's killing a people. And so it's five different things, either killing Uh, members of this group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to them, deliberately inflicting on the group what are called conditions of life calculated to bring about its destruction, uh, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, or the fifth one, and this is the one that Vladimir Putin got hung up on, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. But Ah. any of those five acts that are carried out have to be coupled with the intent to destroy that group. And, and it has to be a national group, ethnic group, racial group, or religious group. And so, you know, when we think back to the Holocaust and, and the Third Reich, I mean, the, the final solution at that genocide was about killing Jews only because they're Jews. You, you can't have any intent to kill them for any other reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, Hitler was killing Jews because they were Jews. Uh, Saddam Hussein was killing Kurds because they were Kurds. It it has to be that and only that if it's going to be genocide. If it's not that, if you have some of those acts but you don't have that intent, then you've got something else. You might have a war crime. You might have crime against humanity, but you're not going to have genocide. And so a careful uh, application of this very precise definition in most cases, won't yield genocide because that specific intent element is very, very hard uh, for a prosecutor to show. Um, but that doesn't that doesn't you know keep people from bandying the term about and claiming that it's happening all over the place. And at the end of the day, if everything's genocide, then nothing's genocide, right? Yeah. Um, so that's one of the problems with its application. And you're right; we do see. You know, South Africa bringing a case uh, against Israel right now over the conflict with Gaza, and the reason that South Africa is able to do this is because they're another party to this treaty, just like Israel is, and the court is the one that resolves those differences if there are differences. Um, and so, South Africa is essentially saying, "Hey, Israel, you're not, you know, you're not doing everything you can to to prevent." Genocide, And the reason South Africa has standing to do this is because a few years ago, um, Gambia brought a case, another African country, they, bought, they brought a case against Burma about the Rohingya people um, on genocide. And the court said, OK, you have standing to do this. So that, that's why the courthouse door is open to, to South Africa. And you probably saw some of that, some of those arguments last week, I think, on, on TV.
1: Uh, I don't want to. I, I don't want to get too far afield, but I need you to answer another question. This has been bugging me since I since I heard it. Um, that in when South Africa was making its case against Israel, one of the terms that was thrown out was blood libel. What is blood libel?
9: Yeah, that's <laughs> that's an old term, uh, and it, it's one that's not particularly. Legally relevant these days, it doesn't come up really in in genocide so much. Um, but it, it has a certain cachet in the Middle East, uh, and, and in Africa, and certainly in traditional societies. Uh, and so, you know, if you falsely accuse somebody of something, um, then they, they can come back and, you know, go against you, uh, in a rather heinous way. Uh, but, Again, you know that that was just for show I don't think uh I don't think that should be taken seriously, but I tell you what if if you apply these elements, you know some of these elements you see happening against Israel on October seventh from Hamas, which actually has said it wants to destroy israel uh and then some of these elements you see happening back the other way, you know uh, against gaza but but you don't see the intent uh on the Israeli side. You know, it's, so I, there's a problem there with this application. The other problem is, uh, if you try to say, okay, well, if it's not genocide, is it a war crime? Well, to have a war crime, you have to have two states. Uh, and Palestine's not a state. Oh. So by, de, by legal definition, it's not a war crime, and people are calling it that too. Again, you know, these are not lawyers. They're, they're just kind of bandying these terms around. What you probably have is you probably have a crimes against humanity problem. Um, and that's a different legal problem, and it's one that the court, you know, wouldn't have jurisdiction over under this treaty. But, you know, the other thing is crimes against humanity, you know, that doesn't play as well with the public. Genocide and war crimes are clickbait. Crimes against humanity isn't. People, people really? do I mean, so you can see why they use those terms, right?
1: But – but it sounds like the same thing. I mean, she said,
9: well, yes. um, "Not understanding any of this, it's, really." It, yeah, it's just not as dramatic as as genocide uh, and war crimes. But those are legally inaccurate, I think. Wow, I'm not saying what isn't happening is terrible in a crime. It is both, but it's just not that one.
1: Um, this is this is really interesting. When you did this, um, when you had this meeting and you made this proposal. Um, was it the Ukrainian like version of the DOJ who was um, taking all of this under advisement?
9: Yeah, components of it, components of it, and and we were in um, the western city of Lviv, uh, and that and and what they what part of what we were doing there um, was we were at the law school in Lviv. Um, is called Yvonne Franco National University. And that law school, 100 years ago, had two law students separated by about five years. Raphael Lemkin, the one I mentioned, who came up with the term genocide, actually graduated from that law school. Wow. And so did Hirsch Lauterpacht, uh, the lawyer who came up with Crimes Against Humanity. These two big gifts to international law that we have today uh, were given to us, you know, almost 100 years ago by these two men at this one law school who didn't even know each other at the time but had the same criminal law professor. And they were both Jewish, uh, and and they, they understood, you know, having lived through, you know, uh, the Reich and the Holocaust, uh, what that meant. Um, but it was also symbolically interesting because that law school uh, in the big hall that we were sitting in uh, was the place where Hans Frank, who was the Nazi governor during Poland, uh, delivered a Final Solution speech calling for oh. the liquidation of the Jews. And right outside of town, the Janowska concentration camp was right there on the outskirts of Lviv, and that's where that city's Jews were being deported to. And, and that was filling up as he was speaking in that room that we were sitting in for Human Rights Day. Um, and so, and Hillary Clinton joined us by satellite in that room that day and her being there, you know, really kind of turned that symbolism back into a positive symbolism that it was when, when Lauterpacht and Lincoln went there. So just, I tell you, just dripping with symbolism, Uh, it, it was a really powerful, powerful place to be and a powerful time to be there.
1: I want to talk to you more about this experience. We need to take another break. I'm talking to Professor Michael Kelly, teaches law at Creighton University in Omaha and is recently back from Ukraine. We're going to continue our talk right after this.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: I'm talking with law professor Michael Kelly. Uh, He's at Creighton University in Omaha. And uh, he has uh, recently been in Ukraine where he has been advising them on how they can proceed to maybe reclaim um, some money that uh, has been frozen from Russian companies and possibly get it to Ukraine. At the very beginning of our talk, Michael, you said the trip to Ukraine was you described it as a dicey trip. Talk to me. I mean, I, you can't just, you know, get the United flight, I would imagine, uh, from Chicago <laughs> to Kiev. How? What were the steps that it took to get you there?
9: Well, uh, it was interesting. The American Society of International Law, which sponsored our trip and, and organized it and went with us, um, arranged for a British security firm to take care of us. And we had a couple of security briefings before we left. You know, including a, a blackout uh, of us going, we couldn't tell anybody but our spouses or partners, uh, and then, you know, a blackout on site, and we had to learn how to use an app on our phone uh, that was hooked into the Ukrainian uh, air defense system. And so when an air raid siren would go off, maps would appear on our phone and we would follow those little walking maps to the nearest bomb shelter. Um, and so we had to learn about all this. We had to learn about uh, not talking to people who might actually be undercover Russians uh, in, Ukraine? When we were in, in Ukraine and in Warsaw, because we all gathered in Warsaw uh, to take buses down to Ukraine. There's no flights in and out of the country. And there are Russian agents in Poland uh, you know intelligence agents uh, trying to get Intel so we had we got trained on all of this um, th- before we left and and I had to fly from Omaha to Detroit to Paris to Warsaw and then take a bus down there uh, police escort met us at the border you, wait a minute you,
1: you flew to Warsaw and took a bus to where
9: to Ukraine oh uh-huh. uh, yeah, you can't get into the country by air. You, ha- you can only go by land. So our choices were to come in through Poland or Romania. Uh, and so we, you know, it, it was, uh, like I said, you know, you're going into uh, a war zone. Um, this is something my university insurance policy does not cover.
1: Oh man, <laughs> so, your wife must have been thrilled about that.
9: <laughs> she was. But the, the American Society of International Law covered all of that. Uh, and and we got there, and we were there for three days. Um, and I tell you what, Joan, of all the dignitaries that we met, and we met a lot of interesting people, perhaps the mayor of Lviv um, made one of the bigger impressions. He, he was passionate about having doubled the size of his city's old hospital um, with foreign aid from the United States and other countries and repurposing it to focus on prosthetic fittings. Aww. Therapy and recovery uh, for people who survive soldiers who survive in the field that are missing limbs uh, and increasingly kids uh, who are pulled out of uh, airstrikes and are missing limbs so this hospital has become uh, a specialty area in the in the field of pediatric prosthetics um, an, an eight year old girl who survives a bomb blast but, but loses a leg. She's got to have a new leg every year until mm-hmm. she becomes 18 because she's growing.
1: Yeah, my uh, um, my partner Ray McKenzie is on the board for a charity called A Leg to Stand On and they mm-hmm. have clinics all over the world in where people are desperately poor and they fit kids with prosthetic limbs and they actually you know i don't know you might want to let the people of ukraine know this they worked with a designer and they've developed a limb they call the joshi and it can grow with the kid it's an adjustable prosthetic really yes yeah Um, the
9: the ones that we we toured the hospital and and the way they were doing it was with an electronic 3d printer and so those those aren't those don't those aren't what you're talking about. No, those, no. You know, these are the static ones.
1: Yeah, and it's um it's made a world of difference because this charity, which has been in existence, I don't know for a couple of a decade or two. Initially, they were, as you said. Uh, having to buy these prosth- prosthetics, new prosthetics every year as kids grew, yeah. and you know, yeah. especially in third world countries where it's even hard for the families to get to the clinics, it has been a game changer for them.
9: Oh, yeah, I bet, and, and they also have um, bionic arms. You know, not not like what you see on TV, but but if you can move the fingers on an arm, you know, but those cost like $20,000 per arm.
4: Uh,
9: And, and, you know, without the the aid and foreign assistance that's coming into Ukraine, they couldn't do this on their own. And I just kept thinking, you know, if our congressional leaders could just be reminded that our aid also goes for this, you know, not just bullets, you know, maybe they they'd be motivated to act faster, but the house Republicans continue you know to stall USA to Ukraine, and, and that is threatening to drag this war on much longer. And these House Republicans are going to need to understand they're helping to ensure that these hospital beds remain full. And someone needs to to hang that around their neck because that's where it's going to hang. Um, perhaps perhaps fittingly, uh, the keynote address at the end of our conference was given by Yale's former dean. Harold Coe, who was the State Department legal advisor under President Obama. And right when he was finishing, uh, a Russian MiG-31 had taken off. And so our air raid sirens went off Hmm. Uh, and everybody kind of scrambled. But once we were reassembled back in the room, uh, Greg Schaffer, the, the president of our group, he was determined not to let Russia have the last word. And so he bounded back up to the podium. Uh, to receive a Ukrainian battle flag from one of the Ukrainian delegates' brothers. They had sent it from the Eastern Front and they had all signed it. And that's now hanging in the offices in Washington, D.C.,
4: uh-huh.
9: uh, for the International Law Society. It, it was really, I mean, I can't think of a human rights day I'm ever going to have in my life like that one. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it is part of the rule of law and it's, it's something that we take for granted over here oftentimes. Human rights. um, But but we can't. We need to remember that we're lucky to have them and we can't just vote them away. Speaking of which, I was voting today and it's caucuses. Yes, Republican. (laughs) And who knows? Maybe they'll vote their own human rights away.
1: Yeah, I don't understand. Other than the fact that they like to find anything to be disagreeable about, I don't understand The uh, lack of support for Ukraine and why that is getting to be. I think it's the people who are behind that in the House of Representatives are, frankly, too ignorant to really understand what they're doing. I mean, you know, you had months ago Mitch McConnell coming out and saying support for Ukraine is a no brainer. You know, it's an absolute no brainer. On the one hand, we send them our old munitions. We take the money and we buy ourselves some new stuff. And on the other hand, oh, by the way. They are fighting one of our biggest enemies in the world, and we don't have to have any boots on the ground. Like, what is not to like uh, about supporting uh, Ukraine? And yet, and yet, I think it's just well, its one of those things yeah, where they're no, being I, difficult to be difficult.
9: I, that's true. I'm not going to take that away from you, and I'm going to acknowledge your ignorance point. <laughs> but <laughs> but, I, but I, th- I think those two things are sitting on top of Trump owning the Republican Party lock, stock and barrel right now. Um, and he, in turn, is owned lock, stock and barrel by Russia. Yeah. I mean, this has been established. You know, we we proved this multiple times. Uh, and I don't know why no one's believing it. If, if, if yeah. Trump had been reelected uh, in you know, 2020, Vladimir Putin would be standing in Kiev right now and Zelensky yeah. would be dead or in jail. Yeah. Um, oh,
1: or if so, he had bothered to stop with Ukraine, he might be standing in Moldova or uh, well, you're right, Lithuania you're right. or Estonia.
9: And we wouldn't be part of NATO to say anything about it, because right. remember, that's what Trump wanted to do. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, you're right about the ignorance and it just being difficult. But but because Russia owns Trump and Trump owns them, I mean, I think you see a clear line here mm. uh, that Moscow his, has into the American Republican Party.
1: And which is just, you know, again, I may have mentioned that I have a number of decades under my belt. And, you know, (laughs) I can remember a time when, you know, being against Russia was like was one of the central tenets of the Republican Party. You know, we we don't like Russia. You know, we're going to stop Russia. We don't we don't want to help Russia in any way, shape or form. And, And 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 woe to anybody who appears to be supporting Russia. And now they're unrecognizable.
9: Yeah, they've completely reversed themselves. I mean, yeah, you know, maybe they went too far. We think about, you know, McCarthy and all that. But, you know, Reagan, uh, Nixon, these were anti-communist, anti-Russian, you know, leaders of the Republican Party that everybody listened to. And no one questioned Now it's all flipped around just because, you know, we've got this this whack job uh, in charge of that party.
1: One of the things, and this is we're okay, we're I'm changing directions here. One sure. of the things um, that I wanted to ask you about, I know that you've also been vo- involved in uh, international law discussions when it comes to Cuba. yeah um you know, under under um Barack Obama, you know, things started to thaw. and then all of a sudden we got Trump, and we seemed to retrench on on Cuba. And uh, shortly after, I think this was shortly after Trump took office, I took my kids, uh, to Cuba. We, um, we spent, I don't know, a week or 10 days there. And it was, it was fascinating. And our guide, uh, talked about how, things had really started to open up under Obama and they really sort of felt like the good times were were on were coming you know Americans gonna show up here it's going to be great and then all of a sudden you know she said now they have trouble even emailing people they know in the United States and some real yeah. fancy hotels they built thinking they were going to get these rich American tourists. Um, You know, they're scrambling to fill these hotels now because the rich American tourists never showed up. Tell me about uh, what you have done, what discussions you've had, what work you've done when it comes to Cuba.
9: Well, um, I've I've been working with Cuba for almost 20 years now. Um, Back in 2005, uh, you may remember there was a president named George W. Bush.
1: Vaguely. So, I'm who vaguely. Does,
9: who doesn't look so bad right now, mm. <laughs> but at the time, <laughs> you know, maybe not. Um, and uh, Fidel Castro uh, developed a cough and started looking ill. And so the Bush administration looked around and said, holy crap, it, it's. Castro dies, and he's been there forever, right? He he was there through 10 presidents. If Castro dies, we don't have a plan. So they uh, decided to develop some plans for what to do in a post-Castro world, and uh, they hired me and my team through the State Department uh, to develop a uh, property claims resolution uh, system because we had, gosh, at that time with interest, upwards of $8 billion in claims, from 1959 when the Castro government seized power and and they took all the american property because they're a communist country right they don't believe mm-hmm. in private property well that's illegal under international law and those claims don't die you have you know you you can litigate those um and so we created this sort of uh joint us um cuba property claims tribunal that would you know likely sit in some place like costa rica and hear these claims uh and satisfy them out like we did with the us iran claims we kind of modeled it on that but we had to put some play in the joints because 1959 is a long time ago
4: mm-hmm.
9: uh, and so the, you know the, these claims were passed down from individuals to their their descendants or if they were company claims Sometimes they move through mergers and acquisitions to, to other companies so you know for instance the old uh, telegraph tower in downtown Havana the multi-million dollar claim on that which was by the International Telephone and Telegraph company IPT because of mergers and acquisitions now belongs to Starwood resorts well Starwood Resorts doesn't have any interest in a rusting out transmitter. They have an interest in beachfront property. And so our claim system had to account for that and allow a company, you know, to settle a claim for a dollar in exchange for something else, uh, you know, that wouldn't cost the Cuban government really much. Coca-Cola was was in the same boat. I mean, Coca-Cola doesn't want a rusted out old bottling plant. You know, on the outskirts of Havana, mm-hmm. they don't want that back. Coca Cola would settle their claim for a dollar, and it's not; it's like eighty-four million. But they would settle their claim for a dollar in exchange for exclusive distribution rights on the mm-hmm. island. Right, get in there before Pepsi. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, there's, there's only two places in the world you can't buy a Coke: North Korea and Cuba.
4: Wow, so, I didn't you know, know that. This is,
9: yeah, <laughs> this this is something they want, you know, in Atlanta. Um, so we had to build some flexibility into this, and we've been watching it. We were very excited when in 2014, like you said, Obama and Castro reached this kind of detente and began, you know, exchanging ambassadors. Um, and we thought, you know, we were going to things were going to happen and, and we were going to have this tribunal and settle everything out because it's in Cuba's interest to do so. If Cuba settles all its claims, then it's going to suddenly it's going to tell the world, OK, we're open for business again,
4: mm-hmm.
9: you know, direct foreign investment. And no one's going to invest in Cuba if they think you're going to take their property. So, you know, this, this is something that has to happen. Um, but it didn't. Trump got elected. Um, And so Hillary didn't. And so we took, you know, a right turn and cut off relations with Cuba again. And disappointingly, the Biden administration hasn't gone back. I mean, they've just kind of forgotten about Cuba.
1: Do you think that's because it's not that it's. Not something that they would do, but it's so far, it's like priority number 57, um, yeah. you know, and they're still not they're still only getting into the 30s now.
9: I know. I know. It, I, I think you're probably right. But I, I, you know, I keep I keep saying, gosh, can't we can't we walk into them at the same time?
1: Or um. do you think it's a <laughs> political move on Biden's part? Because, you know, a lot of um, people uh, who escaped from Cuba and have settled in Florida they're a they're a pretty strong voting block and they hate anything they that looks good for Cuba
9: they do and but they always go Republican I mean would he have those votes anyway I I, I think I think maybe where you, you probably have a good point is he doesn't want to get them energized you know uh. keep them sleepy so they don't turn out and maybe he'll have a chance of carrying Florida um, but You know, I don't know. Uh, You're you're better at politics than I am.
1: Yeah. Well, my guess would be that, you know, generally when it's a second term and they know their term limited, you know, that's when they've got nothing holding them back to making moves that otherwise might have endangered their political future.
9: Right. Well, we're facing a tough electoral map. Uh you know I know we're just beginning the the primary season and maybe that's getting ahead of ourselves but
1: oh my god uh, we're not getting ahead of ourselves there's only something like <laughs> 287 uh I don't know what the exact number is but it's not that many days till we're voting yeah. and and it's getting closer yeah. all the time
9: Yeah yeah, it's 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 nerve wracking, that's for sure. And you know, for all for all the Chicago who, progressives who are listening to you, I hope they stay energized and turn out when it's time to turn out.
1: Well, you know, we have a huge Ukrainian community here. So what's going on in the war in Ukraine? Um, you know, people talk about we are having we're one of the places where Gref- Greg Abbott is dumping migrants, you know, in Chicago, in oh. Rockford, uh, all over this, okay. all over the state. But what a lot of people don't realize is I believe we've had something like 20,000 Venezuelans dropped here. But in the last really? in that in the same time frame, we've absorbed 30,000 Ukrainian refugees Only you never hear about that in the news here because... We have a huge Ukrainian population. There's all kinds of social services. There's a huge Ukrainian social structure, infrastructure, and they're getting absorbed. You know, the the system is working the way it's supposed to. They're getting absorbed. They're getting matched up with families or their own families. They're finding jobs. And it has it's not gotten any attention because it hasn't been a problem. And there have been at least 30,000 Ukrainian refugees that Chicago has absorbed.
9: Well, that's amazing. You need to you need to send some of the younger ones down to Omaha to come to my law school.
1: <laughs> well, you know what? That's doable. That's doable. You know, we'll, they we'll don't make have to be
9: citizens. We're, yeah, we're, we're a Catholic school, so we'll take them.
1: <laughs> what kind of what what's kind of uh, classes do you teach at the law school?
9: So I teach, um, as you might imagine, uh, all the international classes, including national security law and climate change law. But I'm also teaching constitutional law, which is a little bit like shooting a moving target right now, because in case you hadn't noticed, the U.S. Supreme Court has lost its mind.
1: (laughs) I I did. I did pick up a little bit, a little bit on that. You know, it was was brought to my attention.
9: (laughs) Everything's being upended, you know. That has been as it was, you know, for decades. Uh, and you know, those of us who are teaching in this field have to say, okay, well, this is what we know, but don't take it to the bank because we don't know what this next court is going to do. Yeah,
1: I know. It's it's as if the Constitution is changing. And I know right. that the founding fathers wanted it to be a living, breathing document. But I don't think that they meant that it should change because of court rulings. I, my sense is that they thought that the Constitution should be updated legally with the will of the people involved, as opposed to what, right. uh, you know, Clarence Thomas thinks on a Thursday.
9: Right. And, and I mean, frankly, I don't think, you know, there's this tradition uh, in constitutional law that you refer to the court by the name of the chief justice who's sitting. So they refer to the war, you know, the Roberts court or the Warren court. Um, I think this is the Thomas court. I, I mean, yeah. really, this is, this has become the Thomas court. Roberts has lost control. Uh, and you know, he's fighting for some kind of middle ground now, but you know, he's, he's become, he's become, you know, the swing vote. And he was way on the right, you know, mm-hmm. uh, back in 2005. So that shows you where, you know, where the court is, uh, where the court is moving. And it's, it's not moving with society. Uh, it's moving the other direction.
1: Well, you know, you say that the you refer to the court by the chief justice. But mm-hmm. one thing it seems to me that I've learned in my discussions with smart people on the radio over the last couple of years is that... There's not it's not like John Roberts has a huge amount of power over the other justices. You know, he can't say, oh, by the way, this court, this case coming up, Clarence Thomas, you got to recuse yourself here. You know, he he you know, he he seems. Oh, what's a kind word I can say?
4: Um,
9: Well, he's got the power of persuasion, but that's an ever-shrinking, you know, (laughs) gang. He better better start
1: studying rhetoric on his off hours.
9: Yeah, yeah. It takes a certain personality to use that effectively. I mean, Earl Warren was probably the best Uh, in the 1950s when Eisenhower appointed Warren as chief justice. He wasn't some legal scholar from Stanford. He was the governor of California. You know, so he brought political skills, you know, to the chief justice job, kind of like John Marshall did, you know, back in in the early 1800s. And so it took someone like Warren driving the boat to get a unanimous court to coalesce behind Brown versus Board of Education. Right. His argument was, look, if we're going to do this, if we're going to desegregate our schools and make this big social statement, we need to do it. As a unit, unilaterally and, and unanimously, and that statement will make it unquestioned by anybody. And so his political skills were able to, you know, rally even Southerners, you know, on the on the bench to this, you know, to this uh, proposition. I don't know that Roberts has those kinds of skills. Yeah. Um, and so, um, I, Michael, I, if you don't, don't mind, we're
1: gonna... we have a caller who uh, told Andy that he had a question for you. Um, sure, sure. Paul is calling in from Seattle, Washington. Paul, go ahead. Uh, professor Kelly is on the line and eager to hear your question.
8: Oh, I, I always love to uh, to uh, have a chance to, to ask a, a law professor a question. Um, by the way, my other choice for great Chief Justice would be Charles Evans Hughes, who was kind of a swing vote himself uh, in the early Hughes court uh, versus the Four Horsemen and uh, O.J. Roberts. So, it was kind of a bizarre time then. But my question is this, um, regarding the uh, Donald Trump's eligibility on the Colorado Colorado ballot, and I guess now in Maine, too, the court's going to take this question up. I want to know what you think of my theory that they rightly should, but their ruling should be that it is a political question and that they can't rule on it. And the reason I say that is the main, one of the main tests or questions for whether it's an issue with a political question is whether all powers of government that can act or are assigned some uh, power to the issue have acted. Certainly the state of Colorado has acted, but the 14th Amendment, Section 3, says that Congress may remove this disability with a two-thirds majority vote in both houses, and Congress has not acted. Now you could say. Okay, well, hang on a second, Paul. I'm We're gonna...
1: running out of time, yeah. so I want the professor okay. to have a chance to, to answer you.
9: Yeah.
1: Uh, go ahead, uh, Michael.
9: Well, thank you for that question, Paul. I, clearly, you've read uh, the Baker v. Carr political question factors and applied them, and, and I and I think that is there's about a fifty percent chance of your predicted outcome coming true. Uh, if the if the court does not want to touch something, it will say that this is a political question, not a legal question and they'll and they'll you know not not decide it. Um but I I don't know that that will happen in this case because you are, you know, dealing with some definitive uh, uh, interpretation and application of definitive text in the constitution at least the first part um which actually provides the disability to stand for federal office again. Um you're right, Congress has not removed that that disability, but is it up to Uh, up to the state Supreme Courts individually to decide that Trump is disqualified. Well, the Constitution, again, says that it's up to the states to hold the elections, right? The federal government doesn't hold its own election. Um, So that makes them a player or a partner in this. How much of one are they going to be? Well, ultimately, that's what the court's going to decide. You you probably remember uh, the case of Bush versus Gore, right? The, The majority who decided that case that Florida was done counting its hanging chads, right, and George Bush was going to be the president, Are is the very same majority who up until that point said, oh, states' rights, we're all about states' rights. Let's stay mm-hmm. out of the state's business until that decision came down, right, and, and then they were complete hypocrites. Um, so don't put it past the court <laughs> to pull a hypocritical decision. Oh. We have precedent for that. <laughs>
1: Paul, thank you for that question. We are now out of time. Professor Kelly, it is always a delight to talk with you, and I I hope you you, enjoyed today and will continue to come back with us.
9: Thank you. Have a happy new year.
1: You too. Uh, We're going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with much more after this.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: I am so pleased uh, to welcome back for the first time in this new year, Greg Hines from Cranes Chicago Business. Happy New Year, Greg.
10: Happy New Year to you,
1: John. I really enjoyed uh, reading your uh, what? I don't know. Let me see. so I can find the date this posted. Uh, January 2nd. Buckle up for an even wilder year in Chicago politics. Greg, I want you to know I'm not sure how much more my heart can take.
10: Well, you're uh, being a good Chicagoan. You'll take what you get, Joan. Um, it, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, both nationally and in terms of the state and in terms of the city, there's it's it's a mess. Um, one I
1: thing it. I have a little tiny knit <clears throat> to pick you. You start off this article talking about. You know, the really big picture of the Republican Party and whether it will again nominate Donald Trump. You say if Trump grabs the ring, not likely or no, if Trump grabs the ring, likely but not certain, then incumbent President Joe Biden almost certainly will run again. Likely but not certain. How is it not certain? I think the only thing that I see that could derail this is Donald Trump just dropping into a coma.
10: Well, I'll get with you just a little bit, and then and then and let me stipulate up front. I think Trump is the likely nominee. I don't think he's a certain nominee, but we'll find out a little bit in, in Iowa today. Um, Iowa is a state; it's it's a dream state for uh, for Trump. It uh, has a very small minority population. It's very heavily white. It's elderly. Uh, it's uh, filled with the demographics in which Trump does well, but. According to the latest polls, he's, he's uh right around the fifty percent mark. Um, if if Trump doesn't hit the fifty percent mark, and he may not, um, that raises the possibility that that uh, somebody else could could uh, unite what's left, and which is more than fifty percent. Uh, the GOP field has been shrinking. Um, the scenario would be that uh, that. Uh, DeSantis doesn't do very well tonight, um, and DeSantis really needs to do well. He's uh, invested tens of millions of dollars, all kinds of uh, all kinds of foot people, um, uh, the governor's with him. He's got to do well in that state, or his he can follow up his his campaign tent effectively. Um, if he does if he so we're looking at not only we're looking at what kind of percentage does Trump get, does he get a majority, but who finishes second? If If Nikki Haley finishes second, um, they'll give her a big push of momentum going to New Hampshire, where she's going to do well. And the next primary after that is her home state. That gives her, if she does all that, money and momentum or whatever. And then we'll find out how much the supporter of Trump is real, how much of it's a bandwagon effect people want to be with the perceived winner. Um, Like I said, I don't think it's going to happen. But it could happen. And have well, to, aren't uh, one you assuming, on like, it, say,
1: let's say Trump gets 48 percent tonight and Nikki Haley gets, let's give her let's give her 28 percent. Let's say she's 20 points behind and then the rest is uh, divided up. You're right. aren't you assuming that like the DeSantis voters, the you know, the five people supporting Asa Hutchinson, that they're immediately going to go to Nikki Haley's camp? Isn't it just as likely that they will uh, default to the Trump camp?
10: Well, maybe they will, maybe they won't. If they had an opportunity to vote for Trump or to caucus for Trump, and they didn't, that tells you something, doesn't it? Um, like I said, I don't think this is—I don't think this is—is—is uh, is, is real here, uh, or I don't think it's likely. But there's an awful lot going on. Uh, the polls have shown that if Trump is convicted of something and a felony before the uh, general election, that that would make a difference. Um, Loyal as Trump's people are, his voters are, uh, there's a certain Trump fatigue out there, even among some conservative Republicans. How many? Is it enough? don't know. But I'm just saying I wouldn't rule out the possibility.
1: And you talked about Nikki Haley's home state. Isn't the most recent polling from her home state showing Donald Trump beating her even there? I mean, I keep I remember a couple of headlines like Nikki Haley going to soon going to be humiliated.
10: Uh, the polls uh, do show that, uh, but they don't show her losing very, very much. And like I said, uh, what I would bestow is, is and the Hampshire bestow is momentum. Um, if all of a sudden the Trump balloon looks like it's vulnerable, it could pop. We'll see.
1: Interesting. Well,
4: um, and then,
10: I, you know, if, that, if that happens, then the question becomes, and what's the reaction on the Democratic side? Um, yeah.
4: Well, I agree right with something you to alluded to in this article.
1: Uh, um, yep. Joe Biden has said unequivocally he believes he is the best person to defeat Donald Trump. But if it's not Donald Trump in the when the dust settles, I, I I suspect there's a that Biden will step aside. And you kind of allude to that being a possibility.
10: Yeah, I think that's I think that is a real possibility. Um Biden now is in a strong position vis-a-vis within his Democratic Party. But he can say, hey, I've beaten Trump, I can beat him again, so you got to stick with me. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if, it, if it's not Trump and uh, his, uh, his, his uh, popularity ratings continue to decline, he was down to 33% approval rating in somebody's poll over the weekend. And if the polls continue to show Nikki Haley beating him by 10 or 15 points, then I think maybe we we have some discussion and some conversation. There Will certainly be a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, knee knocking in the Democratic Party by insiders worried about losing their jobs or losing uh, their their congressional candidate, whatever. Who are going to mm-hmm. say, "Hey, Joe, you sure you only really want to do this?"
1: Yeah, um, I I want to talk too about um, when you uh, narrowed your focus to the state of Illinois and you You said that you think Trump's position as head of the GOP ticket is already a big factor in Illinois Republican politics. Talk about that
10: Well, it's a good factor on the plus sense and in the minus sense depending on your perspective. Uh, on the plus sense, uh, in downstate Illinois, you have an all-out civil war going on for a congressional seat. It's now held by Mike Boast. Uh, and Darren Bailey, who you'll recall, ran for governor last year. He's running against Boast, and this has become a who can out Trump Trump, who's, low, who's more wild to Trump than I am uh, kind of race uh, down there. So uh, at, at that end of the state, uh, like it or not, Trump is a political plus. People like him, and uh, both of those politicians are surrounding themselves and wrapping themselves in uh, his mantle. Uh, On the other hand, up in the Chicago area, Trump plays entirely different, and that's the reason that Jim Durkin, who was the uh, former Republican head of the Illinois House and was seriously considering running for state's attorney in a race of Republicans, might win in Cook County. Well, he said he's not going to run. He says, hey, with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket? I don't have a chance. That also hurts, I think, any any chance uh, Republicans have to uh, at least to get out of super minority status in the House and the Senate, because most of the seats they they could win are up in this part of the state. Um, Do you you think he's talking about
1: the fact that if Trump's head of the ticket, he'll just simply be painted with the Trump brush? Or that somehow there'll be so much democratic turnout that he doesn 't have a chance? Why is it that if heads if Trump is head of the GOP ticket, Jim Durkin thinks he doesn 't have a prayer as state 's attorney
10: uh, those re- those reasons and others. Uh... Uh, you know, uh, we don't have. You can't vote a straight ticket anymore. You can't punch uh, punch one button and vote up and down the ticket. But you know, you look at the top of the ticket and you see who's, uh, who's an R and who's a D, and that's gonna that's gonna tank the field to some extent. It's that. It's uh, it's uh, it's Republicans crossing over. Republicans cross over at the top. Maybe they'll cross over further down. They won't vote for the Republican nominee uh, for state's attorney. Uh, it all it all plus you know if you're Jimmy Durkin. Why do you want to have to every time you go out on a campaign trail, why do you want to have to answer attacks that you know do you believe this with the Trump said? do you believe that mm-hmm. you know are you going to protect the country are you going to believe we're going to have a fair count here? Uh, what are you going to do about the immigrants? I mean you just get hit with them all the time you can't run your own race
4: mhm
1: yeah i see what' you're, I see what you're saying I see what you're saying that makes a lot of sense um, the immigrant situation and the mayor you uh you write about that too. <clears throat> I um I've seen some action, you know, I mean, the the contract for the insulated tents. OK, maybe the Brighton Park location didn't quite work out the way the mayor hoped. Um, but I'm I was I've kind of been surprised that he hasn't been more out front in this issue and hasn't been trying to humanize this issue because you know with his with his gift of 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 rhetoric and his way of stirring people with his speeches you know i think if he puts a human face on this migrant situation he could possibly you know change some attitudes your thoughts on this whole situation
10: Um, i completely agree with you Joan. Uh, the mayor uh, has, uh, for the most part, not used the bully pulpit that comes with the mayor's office very well. Uh, and He certainly hasn't done it in this. And I think the reason is because there's a split in the mayor's own coalition. Um, uh, uh, progressives uh, are all in favor of uh, of, uh of of loose immigration standards they want to help these people they're in favor of keeping chicago as a sanctuary city but as it indicated in the city council not too long ago um, there's a big sentiment particularly among african americans that hey you know those people in venezuela are fine but what about all the blacks who live up here and Mm -hmm. people who live up here who've who've had problems forever don't we have any 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 homeless we can take care of what about the people don't have jobs and don't have a good education why we spend all this money on those guys rather than on us it's hard to straddle that. There's a way to do it, but it requires some energy and some good explanation or whatever. And, and be it because he can't or because he doesn't want to, this mayor hasn't tried.
1: Yeah. yeah not re- I not am- really.
10: I agree with you. Yeah. I think this has been a deliberate... Decision on his and his and his side to uh, to not to, to not go public. I think that's unfortunate. Why? Because I What's the it.
1: upside for for keeping? Just that you, they think they'll keep him out of trouble. Like if he doesn't say anything, then it, they don't have to worry about him saying something he has to defend later.
10: Uh, I, I'm, don't ask me why this mayor does some of the stuff he does. John. Uh, but uh, uh, I agree with your your bottom line here is that he's had an opportunity, he hasn't used it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, um, speaking of uh, Mayor Johnson, you point out that, uh, Chicagoans will be voting on the Bring Chicago Home Ordinance. That is the, uh, tax, the real estate transfer tax increase that is supposed to fund, um, you know, tackling, solving, easing the situation with the unhoused people in Chicago. But you pointed out that there is, um, they're sort of creating a backup plan. I wasn't aware of this. Ex- explain that.
10: Well, I, I wouldn't call it a backup plan, but uh, uh, we have these wonderful things called TIF districts in Chicago. Everybody's heard it. It's become a it's become a bad name. Well, a lot of them are about to expire, and uh, uh, when they expire, because of some intricacies in the in how TIF tax law works, the city has the opportunity. Not to, use, not to let that return into the tax base, which would cut everybody else's taxes because the TIF money now goes into the general pot, um, but to, in effect, pull it off into a separate separate stream that uh, that uh, isn't just limited to spending in TIF districts as per normal. So these districts retire, are going to die. Um, they're going to create hundred $150 million in tax revenue that the city will then have to be able to use. And the city, as Johnson's people, uh, uh, we, we had a pretty good story, but my colleague at Queens, um, Justin Lawrence, are talking about bonding out that money, using that revenue stream to issue about a billion dollars in bonds, most of which would go for uh, uh, low-income housing, uh, subsidized housing, and so forth. <clears throat> That's good. Uh, the money is needed, but the question is, well, gee, if we can do that, way well, we also need this tax hike. Uh, exactly. On, uh, That's on, uh, why I thought properties. it was a backup
1: plan. Like, in case we don't get the tax hike, this will be our fallback position.
10: No, they probably want to do this, and they're not talking about it very much, which makes me think they don't want you, they don't want people to realize this because uh, not everybody is aware of this story. But, in fact, they're talking about doing both. Um, so it raises, the, it raises the question of why do you need both. And then the second, the, the question I've continued to ask about, about the uh, real estate transfer taxes. I understand the reason for it. I don't think anybody with the conscience can look at Chicago and think that we have enough affordable housing. People deserve a place to live, and it's not in a tent underneath a a viaduct Mm -hmm. somewhere. But they haven't spelled out how they're going to spend the money. You know, what projects, which wards, how many units, who's going to qualify. They just said, oh, we're going to give us some money and trust us. We're going to spend it on good stuff. For oh, God, I hate, oh, oh, oh.
1: I hate that. Dude. Well, I hate that. You, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, we've been voted too many times.
10: Yeah. You know, not for good intentions. I want to say specifics. And they really haven't spelled it out.
1: You know, I've been which reading means, recently, and I think, yeah. oh, I'm trying to remember, I think this reporting has been in Cranes. I found that just staggering the amount of vacant land and also empty housing that the Chicago Housing Authority owns. I mean, I mean, I knew they owned some, but the amount is is staggering. And maybe the extra money, maybe they're going to develop all this property and there's going to be affordable housing for everyone, Greg.
10: Uh, I think you raised some good questions about uh, the CHA property. I don't know enough about that, uh, and I don't want to go too far out on a limb, but uh, I've heard the same thing you are. You, you've heard that uh, there's a lot of uh, facilities that are spaces available that could be used. I have, to th- I have to think that maybe some of it could be used for some of these uh, refugees that are coming in now, that, we can't, uh, that are living in police stations in O'Hare and heated buses or whatever. Um, it's certainly something deserves to be looked at.
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, let's move on to your uh, paragraphs on Dick Durbin, our illustrious Illinois senator who is also a head of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, talk about what you wrote about that.
10: Um, you know, it's almost these days as if who we vote for doesn't make much of a difference most of the time because they're going to go to Washington. and They're going to yell at each other. <laughs> they're not going to do anything because nobody has enough support to to get this thing through it. I'm exaggerating, but it oftentimes seems that, seems that way. But the one clear thing that can happen is a president, particularly when a president's party, controls the Senate, has the, power, the authority to pick judges. And mm-hmm. judges can do all kinds of stuff. And well, Dick Durbin is head of the Judiciary Committee. And they have been doing a pretty good job of, uh, of confirming judges to the federal bench uh, that have been nominated by, uh, by Mr. Biden. Um, he appears to be at about a record pace. It's about 170 confirmed so far. Uh, I think the record is like 230. Uh, uh, under Jimmy Carter, Trump was a little close to that, and, but uh, uh, I'm not sure that uh, Mr. Durbin gets enough credit for this because uh, you get a very narrowly split Senate. The Democrats have a two seat majority. They only had a one seat majority last time, and uh, in, in the last two years, uh, and he's been he's been cranking these people out in pretty good uh, pretty good form. Uh, uh, more recently, some of them have started to come not, not just from blue states, uh, but from red states too, where they worked out uh, deals with Republican senators. Uh, he, he deserves some credit for that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that's you know that's something that, that's going to last a lot longer than any one election. Yep. Uh, and and you know for those who are worried about democracy and some of the stunts that uh, Mr. Trump pulled, having judges who will apply the law is really important.
1: Yeah. As as we've seen, a lot of uh, progressive groups started to get really annoyed with Dick Durbin because they felt he wasn't being tough enough on uh, the Supreme Court as it exists now, that that he should be um rather than trying to subpoena Harlan Crow, he should have been subpoenaing Clarence Thomas and um that, you know, there needs to be some kind of ethics reform that is basically shoved down their throat. Uh, I started toward the end of 2023, I started reading in some of the more progressive newsletters, a real disaffection with um, with Dick Durbin. How do you feel about him when it comes to that?
10: Um, If Durbin had been siloed on this stuff and just kind of shrugged and says there's nothing I can do about it, uh, I think they would have more of a case. But he has spoken up rather, rather strongly. Uh, He's done a lot of media on this thing. Uh, every time another reporter' come out he 's uh, he 's uh, had a press conference or written a letter or done something to pretty much demand that uh, that uh, that the supreme Court uh, adopt the code of ethics um, it 's real easy to say that you we 'll going to pass one and shove it down their throats, but won 't there. That's you know that's like that's like Republicans in the House saying well we're not going to we're not going to shut down the government we're not going to spend a penny until well, we build the wall and the and the, and the, the change all the immigration rules. Um, uh, you have to operate in the real world. Uh, I think Durbin has successfully built up pressure uh, along with the continuing media reports, and that's why the Cart not too long ago announced it. Yeah, it's, it is going to follow a an ethics policy. Now, is it written in law? No. We're going to have to see how it works. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when, when, when somebody's appointed to a to a lifetime job and the only way to do anything about it is to, is to impeach him and convict him, and we know how high that is, Like what, they didn't impeach Trump, are they going to impeach Clarence Thomas? Um, they didn't convict uh, Trump, are uh, they going to convict Thomas and throw him out? Uh, you do what you can do. And I think mm-hmm. that's what he's done.
1: I know, um... Uh, Larry Snelling has not long been head of the Chicago Police Department. So I am withholding any judgment. But do you think 2024 is the year where we're going to get a sense that he was either the right guy in the right place at the right time or another failed choice?
10: Um, I think we'll know by uh, after the summer is over, when we get to when we get to the fall. Uh, we've gone through kind of the, the peak violence periods, whether what he's doing is working or not. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he came in very well respected. Uh, he's been pretty quiet. Uh, he hasn't had a big command shakeup. Um, uh, the numbers seem to be slowly working in his favor. Uh uh, although robberies in particular and carjackings are still a lot involved I know
1: I talked to a lot of people like who live in Wicker Park and Bucktown and um they said you know they understand that the homicide rate has dropped but the the robberies and uh the carjackings uh seem to be getting worse
10: some of that you can blame on the police department some of that I think you can blame on the uh, justice system um, uh, one of the big issues, I think, in the rates for state's attorney, uh, the one that Mister Durkin's not in, but there are two Democrats running, uh, is just how tough you're going to be. Are uh, you going to stick with Kim Fox's approach, or are going to go in a slightly different direction? Um, I know that uh, Kim Fox uh, had a lot of had a lot of support. Uh, certainly, her her calls for restorative justice and for uh, ending the abuses of the past were 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 right on. Uh, uh, but there was an argument to be made that she just was more concerned about letting people out sometimes than locking up the bad guys. Uh, one of her, one of the policies she implemented, for instance, uh, is that is not to uh, prosecute for, for shoplifting as a felony anybody who takes goods of less than a thousand dollars. The statute says he can do it at four hundred. She says that. all well, some other states do that. You don't want to ruin somebody's life, some kid's life, because he stole a pair of Jordans or whatever. On the other hand, just travel of any Chicago neighborhood. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there's all kinds of. The stores that are empty. There's, there's there's vacancies. Talk to any shopkeeper, and they say they're really worried. There's uh, there's a, a guy a, a guy in the Near West Side who has a runs an upscale store. He's been he's been, uh, he's been Uh, badly uh, rated like three times. Um, uh, So no one party is responsible for the crime rate in Chicago. It's a combination of on one side lack of investment and lack of opportunities for for young people who come from uh, inner-city neighborhoods. Uh, uh, It's problems with the police department not doing what they were doing and and overreacting and making enemies of themselves in certain neighborhoods rather than working with neighborhoods. But it's also a prosecutorial system that arguably has gone a little bit too far in the reform direction. It needs to kind of stick to its knitting. Uh, And Its knitting is locking up the bad guys, prosecuting.
1: Greg, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed uh, reading your article, and I will enjoy talking to you throughout 2024 as we assess how some of these areas are developing.
10: Indeed. We'll see. what well, we'll get a good indication tonight.
8: Yeah,
1: yeah, really. Greg Hines, Crane Chicago Business. We're going to take a break. And when we return, uh, I want to give out our text line 773-763-9278. We are going to be um, welcoming Tony Moray back. We're going to do our Ask an Attorney segment. So if you have any questions about uh, wills and estates and uh, planning for uh, end of life issues or illness issues, This is your time to get some free legal advice. We'll be back with more after this.
0: Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: It is our Ask a Lawyer segment with the lovely and talented Tony Murray. We uh, hear him. On WCPT all the time, and we think of him as our very own lawyer. Tony, how are you?
7: Joan, thank you for the very kind
1: introduction. I have to live up to that now. <laughs> oh, I I, I know it. you can because we've done this before, <laughs> and you're always very, very impressive. So um, I actually told people last week that you were going to be here today, and I was like, you know, text in any questions, uh, and they did, so we can start with those. I also want That's the great. audience to know that I am monitoring the text line Right now, live, 773-763-9278. So if you want to ask Tony a question, shoot us a text. Well, I suppose if you want to ask it in person, you can just call and talk to Andy Miles, and he'll put you through to us. Um, so you have that option as well. But we're all, we've are we already got a number of things uh, that were texted in the last week. So, Tony, let's just jump right in here. Um Let's Question let's for Tony. That. My brother is my 85-year-old mother's financial power of attorney. She's in a nursing home. He has extremely bad credit and uses my mother's credit cards for himself personally. He continues to open new cards in her name and makes late payments or doesn't pay the bill at all. Isn't this illegal? Is there anything the other siblings can do to stop this?
7: Um, yes, and yes are the answers. Uh, it, it is illegal. He cannot use his mother's uh, assets to, uh, to to pay for his own things. Is now um,
1: well, Tony? Would this be like ID theft, or is this fraud? Or
7: well, he's he's really taking advantage of his mother, and he's, yeah. he's taking money. He's taking money from from her estate, if you will. Now she's living, but she still has a personal estate. And because he is managing her assets, managing it poorly and managing it illegally, um, there there is a recourse. Probably, unfortunately, it's not easier necessarily the simplest thing. But he, they probably should hire an attorney and go to probate court. Now, probate court is the is the arm of the court judicial system where probate estates, when somebody has passed away, where where executors go. But the probate court will also hear cases like this, where somebody is alive, uh, they're disabled, they can't make their own financial decisions, but it's a recourse. Um, they could do it themselves, probably hiring an attorney, it'll cost some money, but it's probably the best thing to do to get somebody who's experienced and knows how to handle these matters. Um, I, I've had to do this for clients over the years, not often, thankfully. But there is a recourse, and as you can imagine, judges don't like to hear about these sorts of things, and um, they'll do something about this in pretty short order once they're sure of the facts of the case. You know mm-hmm. who the other children are. You know what. You know they'll need to see some written proof of what's been done, credit card statements or whatever. Um, but yeah, there's a recourse, and um, it's it's sad, right? I mean, and yeah, it's really unfortunate.
1: I mean, is this it's, a sort you know, of a situation, Tony? Where one of the siblings like needs to go to the police
7: you know they could they could go to the police, but i i don't you know every situation is different, right every mm-hmm. situation is unique I, I think what the I think what the police will probably say, you know I, I can't guarantee this, but they're probably going to say you, you need to hire an attorney, and and you need to go through the judicial system to prove what's going on. And to have the judge step in and uh, you know you know place an order that somebody else will be the guardian really for the mother's welfare because she needs she needs help she can't do this herself.
1: Hmm. Yeah, uh, I really feel for those people. That's a bad situa- situation to be in. Um,
4: yeah,
7: okay. it, 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 it happens all too often, unfortunately.
1: Ew. Yeah. Uh, let's. Next question is a little more neutral. Can you provide an estimated cost for writing up a trust for a middle-class family of two who own one home?
7: Um, it, uh, let me put it this way. I'd like to, but it's really difficult to do that without having more facts.
1: Yeah, and um, what is and, like? what and, does somebody mean by middle class? I mean, I know a lot of wealthy people who will tell you they're middle class.
7: And, and that's a really good example, Joan, yeah. You know, uh, that's why in my advertisements on WCPT, I offer a a no-cost, no-commitment consultation where I can talk to anybody and, you know, go over their family situation, what their needs are, what they'd like to accomplish. Once I know more, I can tell them exactly what I charge. But doing it in the abstract without really having more information, it's just, it's really hard. I I keep my fees reasonable, and I say that in my advertisements on Mm -hmm. WCPT. I give special, you know, um uh, you know, credit to people, if you will, who are WCPT listeners, as we should. So uh always happy to do that for anyone who is curious on what are the state plans would cost.
1: Yeah. And um I know we have some more questions from earlier in the week, but we have one that just came in now. Um mm-hmm. it's a little uh, like when I text, sometimes I, I'm not very grammatical. So I'm, I think what this person is saying, uh, that their husband is in the mother's will to get the house. Um, and there is another document that says he gets the house. And the question is, can anybody sue him? after his mother dies, for having his name on these two documents. In other words, does he need more protection, I think is what she's asking here.
7: It, it sounds like once the mother passes away, the house becomes his.
1: Yeah, and she's wondering if, if he can be sued for possession of the house.
7: Well, once... Once a piece of real estate is in anybody's possession, whether it comes to an estate or any other way, if there is, you know, an accident at the property, something, somebody's hurt, something happens, you know, then the owner, let's say the legal owner of the property, however they accrued that ownership, could be sued. Um, You know, the answer to the question of, can I be sued? And the answer is generally sure of course you can
4: <laughs> about is, is
7: anything a, is,
1: anytime
7: it, right right is, is it valid is it is it a is it a you know a suit that would be successful well we don't know of course
4: mm-hmm.
7: um, the, the best thing to do with real estate is to have a, an umbrella liability policy in your home that's just a standard amount but it, it, liability insurance coverage to an insurance agency is is not very expensive um, mm-hmm. and that's the best way to prevent a judgment, a sizable judgment for being taken against you because of your ownership of the real estate. You know, commercial companies do that all the time with their commercial real estate, but homeowners should look at that also.
1: What is, what is, what kind of a policy would you ask for?
7: Um, you know, uh, call, call the insurance. If you own a home, call the insurance company where you have your homeowner's liability. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, They all have umbrella liability policy. A million-dollar policy may cost $150 a year. I'm just, you know, ballpark Mm -hmm. figure. It's not a lot of money based on how much, you know, homes are worth these days.
1: Um, Okay, here's another question. My father passed away a year ago. I'm the executor. My sister will not cash a check representing her portion of the estate, about $80,000. She says repeatedly, just hang on to it. Can I force her to take the money? I don't want to be in a position where I have to invest the money or pay taxes on the interest income. Also, I don't want her suddenly deciding five years from now that she suddenly wants the money. So what is what is somebody to do in a situation like that? (laughs)
7: I I can't think of too many people that wouldn't want to receive an $80,000 check. I'm tempted to say
1: right now, if if that was your question, um, if you would like to give the money to me, uh, I will sign any any documents that need to be signed. I'm sure we could have Tony draft something. I can't imagine why this person doesn't want the money. Um, but that seems so weird, you know, when you've got a bequest coming to you that you tell, like, the executor or the attorney, oh, yeah, you know, just hang on to it for now. That doesn't make any sense.
7: No, it it doesn't really, but it is happening, evidently, and it's a good example of the reason why trying to keep one's estate out of probate is kind of always a good idea, right? But, Mm -hmm. you know, this woman is the executor the estate, Either is still in probate court, or or the estate's been closed. We don't know which. Um, but one thing, one thing I would recommend that she won send, send her sister a certified letter. Now, we don't know their relationship, of course, but mm-hmm. send a certified letter and say, you know, I, I need to disperse the funds from from mother's estate, and I want you to uh, accept the check within, you know, within thirty days. If you don't, I'll have to go back to court and ask the judge. Or an order to compel you to accept the check. And the judge will do that.
1: Mm-hmm.
7: If, you Is know, the judge will do that.
1: Are bequests like this taxable, Tony? Is it possible she's just thinking, well, I made too much money this year. I don't want to pay extra taxes. Maybe next year I won't. Maybe I work on commission and maybe next year I won't have the same income and it'll be smarter for me to take it then? I mean, well, would this it, it, this? It, it, I assume this bequest will add to her income, right?
7: Well, it'll it'll add to her debt worth, but it's not earned. I'm not a CPA, and I'll just say that, but it's not it's not earned income though, because so there's no tax when it initially comes to her. Okay, she gets the check for eighty thousand dollars. There's no immediate tax. If there were a tax on the estate, the estate would pay that tax,
4: uh-huh. and
7: but the check for but well, the check for $80,000, it doesn't sound like it's a, a taxable estate, either from the federal government or the state of Illinois. So she would have income uh, once she started earning income on that $80,000 amount. But the, the, it being taxed does not sound like it would be any sort of reason why she wouldn't want to accept the money.
1: Because hmm. that was we, the only thing could I describe. could think of.
7: Yeah. It, 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 and I just don't think that's the issue. Um it, 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 hopefully the a woman who doesn't want to take the $80,000 of listing and she can call in too, right? Mm-hmm. And we can ask her.
1: Ooh, I have another question. What if she is married and she's worried about it becoming marital income? Maybe she's planning to get divorced and she wants him to hang on to it so that when it comes to her, it comes to her. Would it, if you're married and you get a bequest, if you're mentioned in somebody's will, is that marital income? Would she have to share?
7: Um, again, I'm not a CPA, but typically speaking, it money that's inherited when it initially comes to is is not marital property. But if there's a CPA listing, they may correct me on that. But but generally, it is no, not. no. I, th- so. I
1: vaguely recall somebody else telling me this that um, that if you inherit money, that is un- that is yours, and it is yours uh, yeah. regardless of what your spouse does or doesn't think about it.
7: Yeah. So we're trying to think of a reason why she doesn't want the eighty thousand dollars. Yeah, 000, don't we? and it's, and it's <laughs> hard. <laughs>
1: you know, maybe maybe she's so rich, Tony, that eighty thousand dollars is just <laughs> chump change, and she doesn't want to be. It's not worth walking to the bank to deposit it. Okay, I don't.
7: does, well, does, what, she, does she, she said, "Give it to her sister. who's the executor. Then she, she
1: worked, right?" I think there was a, one of the big supermodels once said, "I don't get out of bed for less than ten thousand dollars a day." Maybe that's her. Maybe that's the problem.
7: I guess that's why we get out of bed every day. That
1: is, <laughs> I guess so. Um, Tony Moray and I are going to take a quick break. We are going to continue to answer your questions when we come right back after this.
4: Because
0: facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. Joe Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: is our sponsored segment ask an attorney the lovely tony Murray is here dispensing advice um you know one of our questions tony referred to the the brother who had the mother's financial power of attorney i've heard of yes. financial powers of attorney property medical how many are out there and do you need to have all of them
7: yeah really good question joan um I think that um, when I speak with clients who don't have an estate plan yet or just have an old, old one, they might have a will. They're interested in perhaps a trust. One thing that's just not generally talked about a lot, it's really not understood well, are in Illinois what are called durable powers of attorney for health care. And there's also one for property. So they're two separate documents. And what these documents do is uh, I would name someone to be my agent, and, and I have those documents, of course, and my wife is my primary agent. So if I have a medical emergency, if I can't make health care decisions, one, and two, I'm not capable of making financial decisions, those documents that I have appoint my wife as my agent to act for me if I am disabled, in other words, can't act, either for a short period of time or an extended period of time. Those documents work during someone's life, whereas a will or trust is, is activated, if you will, or used when someone has passed away. But the powers of attorney are really important because if someone doesn't have those documents, and again, they're, they're statutory documents, they're in, if you Googled it, you would, you would see in the Illinois statutes or the laws that these documents are there in black and white, and those are the documents we all use. Um, hospitals are used to seeing this document financial institutions are used to seeing the uh, durable power of attorney for property. So they're two distinct documents but both work during disability and if somebody doesn't have those documents then their spouse, partner, parent, child, whoever would have to go to court to be appointed as the guardian for that person who is disabled in order to act on their behalf. Again, you know, over the years I've done that many times for clients, and it, it's a process that if you need to do it, you need to do it. But it takes time. There's expenses involved, and it's it's just the the process of doing that is just so clearly done away with by having these two simple documents that uh, are provided in the the law in Illinois.
1: I'm a little bit confused. You mm-hmm. said there was a. Power of attorney for property, but you also mm-hmm. said that would allow your wife to make financial decisions. This person said no, that their no, brother was the fina- had a financial power of attorney. Is there no, no such thing? Again, as, is that is that the same thing?
7: No, they're two separate. They're two separate documents. In Illinois, they're called durable powers of attorney. I don't know why they came up with that name, but they did. <laughs> There's, there's As opposed to flimsy
1: ones, I suppose.
7: Yeah, I, I, I guess, supposedly. There's a durable power of attorney for health care to make health care decisions. And there's a separate durable power of attorney for property to make financial decisions. In other words, to let someone sign your name if you are disabled.
4: Mm-hmm. That gives
7: the person the legal authority to sign for you.
1: Yeah, I remember that when I did um a power of attorney for for health care you mm-hmm. had to i had to specify like when it would kick in and mm-hmm. I was very specific that you know, even if I was nonverbal, if I was still um able to communicate by, like, writing my wishes or, you know, pointing to letters on a board to express my thoughts, that I was still going to be the one to make my decisions. Only if I couldn't communicate verbally or nonverbally does it kick mm-hmm. in. Do, does, you know, when you're helping people fill these forms out, you know, do you give them ideas of, like, how they can, you know, how do you feel about this, Joan? Well, I don't want anybody making any decisions for me unless I'm, like, in a coma.
7: Sure. Yeah. It, it's a really good question. And, and what you've done for, for, your, for your own needs is really a good idea because everybody does feel a little differently about this. So, yes, it's a form document in the statute, but it can be customized, if you will. Mm-hmm. to take into account your specific needs or your specific wishes. Um, in the healthcare power of attorney, there are three paragraphs, kind of generic paragraphs. They're labeled A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. And you can sign under one of those three paragraphs as a directive to your agent. But there's also space to give specific wishes, as as you did in your case, with your document.
4: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, it, it's hard for any of us to imagine how we'd feel if we were under a let's say a personal disability right you describe not being able to verbally communicate but still being able to to, to make your wishes known mm-hmm. through writing or, or other means so um, it, we, we generally count on the doctor's written determination as to whether somebody is quote unquote disabled not able to function and if there's an issue in a family, oftentimes the judge will will make that decision as to whether that person is capable or not. If if there's a family situation where people aren't agreeing, which does happen sometimes, of course.
1: There was also, I decided that rather than doing my power of health care attorney in a vacuum, you know, you know, I have two adult children, and they might seem to be the obvious people to make some of these decisions. But I sat them mm-hmm. down and I said, look, Um, I trust you. I'm more than happy to put your names on this document. But I also, if something were to happen and the decision was whether or not to pull the plug on me, I'm not sure that I want to put you in a position where you have to live with that decision for the rest of your life. And so mm-hmm. I sort of left it up to them. I said, you know, because at first they were kind of like, well, this, you know, we you know, our, our names better be on this. And I was like, that's fine with me, but let's think this through of what kind of a position you might be in. And do you want to have to have that kind of a burden? And in the end, Tony, they both decided uh, that I should choose somebody else.
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I hear these um, stories of families all the time. Um, sometimes children are are more than happy to go ahead and do that. And for other people, maybe a sibling or somebody else disappear. It can sometimes be a better choice. You know, it depends on the ages of the children too, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it depends on sometimes it depends on their geographic proximity. You know, I have three adult children, and none of them live anywhere near my wife and I, which is fine. But sometimes they in, in, a, in a practical situation, sometimes they wouldn't be the best person because yeah. they're just that close by, right? Yeah. And, you know, and that's not the kind of thing and,
1: you want them to call in, you
7: know? No, it's not. Well, it's not. well, no. That's that's a good point, though. It's not because it's just sometimes not that practical, mm-hmm. and um, and so every family has different needs and requirements, and that's part of my job is is to talk this through with my clients because. Some families are very good at talking this through. You sat down with your children and mm-hmm. you talked about it. Other people, it's not something they maybe want to talk about it. And some children tell their parents, Mom, Dad, I don't want to talk about that. You know, <laughs> you're going to live yeah.
4: oh.
1: <laughs>
7: yeah. that would be That would be nice, I guess. But.
1: And again, I want to clarify that these two documents you're talking about, they're separate from a will. They're separate from a trust. Right. Oh,
7: totally separate sub- Yeah. Totally separate. And they they perform totally different functions because they act or they worked during our lives. Whereas the the will and the trust they exist while we're living, of course. But you don't really. They're not really used until someone has passed away. But the durable powers of attorney for property and health care uh, are 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 there. Should be there during our life. In case of disability, nobody knows what's going to happen when they walk up the door in the morning, right? Yeah. Whether, you're, whether you're 25 or 75, it's, it's just a fact of life. And, um, you know, being prepared for those things helps those other people in our family to mm-hmm. also be prepared
1: Tony, I know that you're supposed to revisit these kinds of documents if you if you have a big uh, life changing events. But if your life, mm-hmm. if if things are just sort of going uh, going along with no big changes or bumps in the road, how often in that case should you revisit these documents?
7: No, I generally recommend that that people should at least take a look at their documents, maybe every five years
4: mm-hmm.
7: or so, just just to see what they look like and. We're, we're all humans. Human nature is a powerful thing. Uh, once these documents are drafted and signed, people don't generally want to go back and look at them that often. And <laughs> no, I, I know. That. I mean, I, it, it's, just, it's just the way we are. I, I do because this is what I do every day, all day. But I understand that. But I, I just tell people every five years, or you're right, Joan, it's a life-changing event. Um, you know, major change in financial situation. Um, m- moving. Is another event. Retirement is obviously a big event, or uh, inheritance. You know, a parent passed away and and money is inherited. That may not change what you want to do with your estate plan, but it's a good time to look at those documents. I I, I urge people to look at these documents as as really organic, living documents, rather mm-hmm. than something that's done once and okay, yeah. I'm going to shove it in the drawer and put it away. And you know, I'm you know, I'm preaching, but you know, it's it's, it's I try.
1: Tony Murray, thank you so much. It is so nice of you to volunteer your time and answer the questions of our audience. Uh, Thank you again for doing this.
7: It's a pleasure, Joan. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.
1: It's a lot of fun. Tony Murray, you want a will or a state? Listen to his spots here on WCPT. He's the guy to go to. Uh, That's going to do it for me. Uh, Just got an alert that the Chicago Public Schools have canceled all after-school classes and classes for Tuesday because of the expected bad weather tomorrow. Just as an FYI, um, I will be here tomorrow at two o'clock. Driving it home with Betty Vasquez is next. Have a great evening, my friends. Good night.